welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm David Bax. I'm Scott Nye. <laughs> Are you sure? Well, you said you, you were going to introduce me, and, I didn't, and that wasn't much of an introduction. Right. That was just a cue. You're right. I wasn't I, ready. I, I, I went into to autopilot. I didn't realize what was going to come out. But uh, that's right. Yeah, Tyler's not here, just like I wasn't here uh, last week. Uh, we're, we're trading off just this two weeks. So we're going to go back to normal <laughs> after this. Um, but uh, I want to thank our, our guests. Um, from the last two weeks when I wasn't here. Uh, Who were they, David? Uh, well, two weeks ago, it was someone from Tyler's class. His name yeah. was Dave. Yeah. Pratt? I don't know. Platt? Dave is all I got. I, and have, I've now forgotten, as, as we were talking about beforehand, I'm having Wi-Fi trouble, so I can't look it up. Uh, and then uh, for the bonus episode that went up on the day of the Oscar nomination, Stephen Farber joined uh, Tyler to talk about the Oscar nomination. So that was uh, terrific. Very uh, exciting. Yeah, I hope, uh, I hope sometime we get to give, have him back when I'm around. Um, but that was, that was great. Uh, thanks to both of them. Um, Scott, you're here, uh, not just because you're the third member of Battleship Pretension and seemingly live here this month. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, but you're here because you and I, uh, spent, uh, about five days at, uh, Sundance. The snowiest, coldest days of my life. It was crazy. Yeah. Like at first I was like, Oh, David, you're being a wimp. You're just like SoCal acclimated. But then I was like, no, this is bad. Like, yeah, because last year we talked about how like once we got there, you know, it was cold, but we acclimated pretty fast. Yeah. And this year I was like, am I just getting old? What's what's happening <laughs> well, it, here? It, it basically it essentially didn't not snow. Right. At any point. No, <laughs> while we were the there. Entire time. Uh, and the I guess the day the sun Sunday, I left late on Monday. You left Tuesday morning. Yeah. Right. Um, Sunday, it was. Oh, it was essentially a blizzard. Oh yeah, um, and uh, and Monday as well. Actually, now that I'm Monday, Monday was the real bad day. Actually, I'm getting my days mixed up because I uh, left one screening. We'll talk about the movies uh, later. I left one screening, and there was a, uh, a press and industry, industry screening of who I really wanted to see, and I was like. Uh, I, and I missed the shuttle. Like I didn't right. get, uh, cause the Eccles, you don't step around into the shuttle. You have to walk all the way across the yeah. high school parking lot to get to the shuttle stop. And I missed the shuttle and I was like, all right, I know I can walk to, uh, the, where the press news screenings are from here. I did it last year. That's a long walk in that weather, but in that weather, yeah. like against the wind and yeah. especially <laughs> like, I don't know if you made that walk, <clears throat> But the sidewalk at one point sort of splits off from the side of the road and goes through essentially it's almost like a little park type area. Okay. I thought so, I did make that walk. But I don't remember that. Uh, uh, so at one point, I, well, maybe if you were on the other side of the street, yeah. Houston, but so at one point I just felt like I couldn't, I can no longer see the road. I could right. no longer really hear it, even though it was probably only uh, 15 yards from me and the wind was just blowing and all I could see was like, I was trying to look down to make sure I stepped in the footsteps that were right. in, front of me, in front of which were already filling up with the snow. And I was like, fuck. Like, well, that's I, the other thing is that the snow was coming down, but it was also melting pretty fast during the day. So there's huge puddles everywhere. It was yeah, terrible. That's right. That's right. Um, so, uh, don't go to Sundance is worse. <laughs> Uh, uh, no, uh, it, it was, it was a blast and we're going to talk about it, uh, in detail. We're going to talk specifically about the movies that we saw, but we'll, um, also add some color here and there with the other, uh, fun experiences that we had. Um, but first I want to, uh, tell you about our sponsors. <laughs> 
This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. And there is also a special offer... I almost said officer, which I always do. Uh, there's a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship to redeem now. And Scott, while you're here, while I have your attention, I also want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com. You lost my attention. <laughs> That's, no, uh, please, everyone pay attention. Uh, this is very important. Tweaked uh, is a fantastic company that makes fantastic professional quality earbuds in a variety of very stylish styles and very colorful colors. Uh, they look great. They sound great. I use them. Tyler uses them. I don't know if Scott has any, as a pair. Uh, I do. They're very good in, on the plane because they cancel noise quite well. There you go. Uh, another ringing endorsement um, for tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you'll get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Scott, how have you been since the last time we had you on the show two weeks ago? Uh, well, two weeks ago, man... I feel like so much has happened the last two weeks, but I was just about to get sick that next day, and then I got better, and then I got sick again over Sunday. So, I've been—it's been nothing but sick kind of January. But uh, I did get to go to Sundance, so that was a blast. Yeah, nothing um, wrong with that. No, I was—you know—I wasn't looking forward to it as much this year, but by the end of it, I wanted to leave even less than last year. I feel like there's still so many films that I could have seen that I didn't. I guess from that point of view, I, yeah, I wish I could have seen more films, but I—I I was. I was ready to leave. Well, the weather was quite off-putting. Don't yeah. get me wrong. And, uh, well, no, I mean, you're not married yet, but <laughs> I miss my wife. I missed my fiance too. I hope she doesn't listen to this. Oh, she might. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, we'll talk about the movies we saw, but, um, what are, what are your other favorite things about Sundance or about going to Utah? Um, well, I mean, last year I really enjoyed just walking around the town, but as mentioned, that wasn't really a joy this year. Yeah. Um, Cause it is when the sun's out, when the snow's on the ground, it's super pretty. It's like yeah. a little Christmas village town. Um, you can see the ski slopes and people are out having a good time and it's just a jolly place to be. Um, other than that, uh, I didn't do as much social stuff this year. I know you did, but I usually, last year I found out about all the social stuff through Twitter, but because the inauguration was going on and well, things were hell, I just stayed off Twitter for most of the weekend. When you say social stuff, what do you mean? I mean, like going out for drinks with people or dinners or stuff. Yeah, I, I, I went out to one 
dinner okay. with Angie Han and we ran into uh, Jason Bailey. Right. There. Uh, shout outs all around. But as far as that, my other like quote unquote social stuff was mostly sitting at the Doubletree bar with other writers, <laughs> not talking, just everyone writing, like everyone writing reviews or, right. or doing whatever they uh, needed to do. There's there's one point when they were like three or four of us writing while the Packers Falcons game was on. And then there was um, Matt from Collider who's apparently a Falcons fan I learned. And so he's just staring at the TV. So it's like four bloggers <laughs> blogging and every once in a while, yes. And a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, you say social, but like this is the difference between, you know, comic con. I'm like, I like the, uh, you know, I go to the convention during the day. I go out at night, right. I drink with people. I meet with people. You know, I, I, I try to get my writing. If I, if I'm doing any writing, I get it done, um, uh, during the daytime. Uh, but, with Sundance, there are parties. Maybe once I go for a few more years, maybe I'll get into the groove of that sort of thing. But really, I'm kind of there just to see movies and write about them. And that's kind of more fun. Yeah, no, I, that is largely my attack as well. I actually did get invited to some parties this year, but ended up not going. Because yeah, yeah. You, know, I, you can I, see movies instead. I don't yeah, know. exactly. And if you're not seeing movies, then you need to write or sleep or eat. Sleep um, moreover than anything. Yeah, I, uh, I, I didn't eat much. There were a couple points at this when I, I had some free time and I was like, all right, I'm going to eat a meal. But a lot of times it was just grabbing croissants or apples or cups of coffee or bags of chips in between screenings. Yeah. I think, yeah, you, you, uh, you saw me wolf down a hot dog in the two minutes before <laughs> a French <laughs> world war one <laughs> tragedy was yeah. about to start. You really went to town on that thing. You looked like you hadn't eaten in days. Yeah. Cause when I like, it was the movie's going to start and I got to get my notes out and right. I just got like, I got to finish this hot dog. You got your routine, man. Can't let that um, hot dog get in the way. Yeah, um, but the other thing uh, was that happened during during Sundance this year was the and this it happened all over the world and it was very touching the uh, the women's march. Yes, I did go to that very briefly. Uh, I went even more briefly. <laughs> you and I both had the same experience. I think where um, traffic was not moving no, and we both decided to walk. But you had left before I did, so you got to see more of it. Um, yeah, I walked probably forty minutes, and that was after spending ten to fifteen minutes not moving on the bus. Oh, I just spent an hour not moving on the bus <laughs> and then I walked back out of there. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah. And then I, I also left my gloves on the bus, which is a bummer. Oh man, um, you were gloveless that whole weekend. Um, after the, after the March I was, yeah. yeah, because I was like, like I said, the bus wasn't moving and then we were like pulling away from a stop. So I know I'm contradicting myself because obviously <laughs> we're moving, but I was like, I'm just going to walk. So I like right. jumped out of the bus, like right before the doors were closing. And then I like went to put my gloves on and I went, Oh, fuck me. <laughs> fuck me. And a Sundance uh, volunteer said, <laughs> I can't remember, he was like super cheery. Right. And he was like, did you lose something? And I was like, I just left my gloves on the fucking bus. And he was like, ah, gloves and umbrellas. Easy come, easy go. <laughs> I, I, I tweeted this, but like I go to, you know, enough festivals and conventions yeah. that I have a lot of respect for volunteers at these things. Yeah. But I have to say no disrespect to the volunteers at other festivals and conventions. Sundance volunteers are something special. Oh yeah. They're a class of their own for sure. Yeah, they, they are terrific. They actually know what's going on, which most volunteers at most events don't. <laughs> yes. You know, God bless them for being out there, but they have no clue what's happening ever. But these people do. And they know when the buses are coming, they know when the movies are starting and they always have a good smile on their face. And yeah. Happy to be there. Yeah. There's yeah. It, take, it takes a certain special kind of someone to be a Sundance volunteer. Um, I'm not sure where my dog is making so much noise, but I'm assuming the mic's not catching it. I'm not picking it up. No, he howled a lot worse than this last time I was here to oh, record right. and it was, it didn't pick up at all. <laughs> um, that's right. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and then the final thing before we talk about the movies, I have to bring up the uh, the thing that I hate at every festival. Uh-oh. I love, the, I love the volunteers. Here's right. the thing I hate at every festival. The festival bumper. Oh, yeah. That plays before every movie. Now, I will say, as far as these, they're all awful. Um, but as far as these go, last year's Sundance one was one of the least intrusive. I don't even remember it. I think that's the point. Well, fair <laughs> enough. It, like, because when we're seeing, you know, you saw 17 movies. I saw yeah. 14 movies. Like, you're seeing the same thing at the beginning of every movie. It gets... It's really and starts it was to wear really on. like narratively driven this one. And so it like took a weirdly long time and had this very catchy music that was always stuck in my head. Uh, and yeah, it was always the same one, which like at AFI fest, it was a different one. They had like three or four that they cycled between That's right. That's so right. That was yeah. kind of a good way to do it. But then this it was just the same damn thing. And then the, after the bumper, they have the credits of the people who made the movie and the credits of the people who responsible the festival. Yeah. The whole thing took like a minute and a half. Yeah. And it, and this is, it happens at every festival and it's just like, I guess, I don't know. There's gotta be gotta be a better way david uh, yeah uh, yeah um but at least it wasn't I, I think um now you were at your first la film fest this past summer yeah that had a bumper plus and a los angeles times because they were like the more That's major right. sponsors so it was two things that were yeah. too long that played at the beginning of every movie i only went to like four movies actually okay. at the festival so that didn't work as much um but yeah I, I, i've gone to enough festivals now to like the first time i see a bumper i'm like what about this? Am I going to hate by this time tomorrow? And then even more so in, in four days time, yeah. uh, four or five days time. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Why I brought that up just to say it's a, it's a facet of festivals that nobody really talks about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say positive facet of festivals right. that I, I, I know I feel like I've had this conversation with people before. I don't know <laughs> if I've, I've had it on the podcast, but I feel, and maybe it's just my luck and it's gone the other way a couple times as well. But I feel like there's a certain kind of festival magic. I talked about like leaving the screen of the Eccles to make it to the other one. Right. And like, you know, um, having very little time inside, but I got there and it was fine. And I yeah. sat down. There's, there's a festival magic where sometimes I feel like there's no way I'm going to make this screening. And I try. And I feel like most of the time I end up making the screening. I, the only screening in two years of Sundance that I've gotten shut out of was birth of a nation last year because I sh- wanted to show up like 10 minutes before it started, right. which is foolish. <laughs> but this yeah. year I didn't get shut out of anything, including call me by your name, which I literally ran to two minutes after it started. Yeah. And that, that was the one that I had, um, fought through, uh, you know, the fought the elements, oh, yeah. uh, to, to get to, uh, and I, and uh, I was so, so I thought for sure it was going to be full cause I got there like 10 minutes before. Uh, and they're like, yeah, go on in. Yeah. And I literally had like ice in my beard. <laughs> like I'm, I came in looking like, I don't know, uh, look like you belong and walking out. Uh, yeah, I was going to make, uh, the revenant, uh, yeah, joke, yeah. but yeah, the movie people have actually seen good call. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I did see walking out and I saw a bunch of other stuff and we'll talk about that in a second. I want to real quick, cause Tyler and I are trying to do this more, uh, point out, uh, what's going on on the website, uh, right now things that you can things that you can check out um sarah is continuing continuing her year-long uh watch through of the battleship retention voter uh listener voted uh top 100 she's in, in the still in the 90s so with uh with amelie and, and some other stuff uh the top uh, are it's 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 battleship retention you know year-end season from it sure is from january 1st uh through the oscars um so top 10s are popping up uh including including rudy's um there's a ton of 
Sundance reviews um, that you can check out. Uh, our friend Jason's short film starring Pat Healy and the voice of Bill Dwyer, uh, Desk Job, is now available on Vimeo. We posted posted uh, posted that up there. Um, uh, it was Dave Platt was our guest there two you weeks go. ago, uh, so I had it right the second time. Um, and the uh, the Oscar nominations. Um, Mariah's top 10 West is, uh, on his musical notation podcast, did an episode on, uh, the music of Mel Brooks movies. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, all kinds of, all kinds of fun stuff, uh, going on, uh, including, uh, new reviews this week. Well, not new. I reposted my review of gold because it went wide and, uh, you posted a review of the salesman. Sure did. Just, just today. I have not read it yet. It's very short. You could probably read it right now. And <laughs> what between me talking, no one would notice you did. Um, so that's stuff you can check out on the website. We hope that you do. Uh, we put uh, a lot of time into the website, especially I would say the two people sitting at this table put a lot of time into the website. Um, we all yeah. work hard, David. Yeah, no, no, I, I didn't mean <laughs> to say that Tyler is slacking off. I mean, that, like Tyler does awesome things for the podcast right. and for like the getting, you know, anytime you hear a sponsor or whatever, like that, that's Tyler doing that. Whereas you and I, uh, focus on the written part of Battleship Retention a little bit more. Well, you're even being generous and lumping me in with you, but I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, that's why well, I already said, let's get into it, shall we? Uh, so let's say that we are into it and we're going to go alphabetically just like we've done uh, in festivals past, um, which means the first two movies are, are yours and yours alone. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. The, the first one is ironically one of the last I saw. Uh, it's called Beach Rats. Uh, listeners of the preview episode will be glad to know that I actually took notes this time before showing up here, so I have like director names and like stuff they've done before without having to search my brain for twenty minutes. Uh, so this is directed by Eliza Hitman. Uh, it is her second feature following. Uh, God damn it! I didn't write that one down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it felt like love. I knew I'd remember it. Uh, is there a second feature following It Felt Like Love? Wait, which one is It Felt Like Love? I haven't seen it. I don't know anything about it. I just okay. know that it made like a miniature splash two, three years ago. Um, this one centers on a young man, probably, I'd say he's about 21. He was on a booze cruise at one point. I don't know how easy it is to sneak on those. He read to me as like 1920, but I assume he's about 21. Still lives at home, doesn't really have anything going on, just kind of hangs out with his friends at, you know, as the title suggests, at the beach. I'm um, just kind of killing time, getting high, doing the uh, slacker 20-something thing. Uh-huh. But he's also taken an interest in uh, cruising online for men to have sex with, um, which in the culture he is uh, surrounded by isn't terribly welcome. You get the sense that if he were to come out to anybody, it would not be or received. You know, he might get kicked out of the house. He certainly would be ostracized by his fellow meathead friends. Um, but mm. he... And it, so he feels a genuine sense of shame about what he's doing. And the actor who plays the main character, Harris uh, Dickinson, does a really nice job of kind of building layers onto that without, you know, making it seem like the film is punishing him or like it really seems like it's coming from him. You know, like he could be making different choices, but it's just a sense of self-loathing that he has built into himself. So in order to kind of avoid that and create an alibi for himself when he's making all these rendezvous, he also gets a girlfriend. Um, and so the film is kind of about him trying to make genuinely trying to make that relationship work because he feels like that's the way it should be going. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, he continually gets drawn back into, uh, this world of, you know, illicit hookups and he tries to mainly hook up with older guys so that they won't 
fall into a social scene, but inevitably he strays from that too. And just, you know, inevitably these worlds come crashing down on one another and collide in interesting ways without fully giving him away. But it comes to a point where he definitely has to make a decision one way or the other. Um, and it's really, I mean, you know, I've never gone through this process myself, but it felt like a very honest exploration of the push and pull one feels and establishing one's identity, uh, especially in his position where, you know, he doesn't have like economic independence. He doesn't have a lot of choices for where he can run. Um, he just kind of is living his life and thought he could skate by on that, but is having him kind of actually confront himself for probably the first time. And it's a really, really strong movie. Um, the director said up front, it's a really tough movie. Uh, and you could kind of feel the tension in the audience around that. Um, but I, I think people generally, generally took to it. And, uh, I certainly did myself. Um, I'm glad you said the the director because I feel like we should point out as we go like which screenings we saw you know because there's a public screening and the, yes. the press screening and the public screenings often have Q and A's or introductions or, or whatever and I feel like we should call out those those details so this I'm guessing was a public screening this was yeah um, um, it was I think the world premiere I don't think it had shown anywhere else before um, okay. so that was very exciting. Uh, and the director was there, you know, she gave a good introduction. I didn't stick around for the Q and a because I had other movies to see. I, I know you hate staying around for Q and a's period. In general, I stayed, I, I don't think there was any one movie that I stayed for the entire Q and a for. Right. Well, except for, we'll talk about Berlin syndrome when we get to it. Cause that was oh, a right. very unique <laughs> oh, thing. I just said very unique. The thing that I always rail against, uh, that was a unique case. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, I, I, I did stick a little bit around a little bit for some of the Q and a's, um, if only so that I could text my wife the celebs that I saw. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. Uh, I actually like the Q&As, but I just didn't have time for really any this year. Um, so that was that. Um, the next movie on our list is Before I Fall, which is actually getting a release in like two weeks or something. It comes out in February sometime. Um, but it's this young adult adaptation that's kind of a Groundhog Day scenario uh, set oh, okay. amongst high school girls. Um, the best basic premise is uh, Zoe Dutch it plays this girl who's like one of the popular girls at her school and has kind of a mean girls kind of crowd. And as you might predict from a Groundhog Day scenario, she eventually learns many lessons throughout the film. Um, but after it gets kind of through that initial setup, which I don't know about you, but all these kind of films that end up repeating someday over and over, whether it be a Groundhog Day thing or a time travel thing, that initial day is a drag to get through. Because <laughs> you keep trying to figure out, like, what are the details we're going to keep coming back to? Oh, and I see what you're saying. Yeah, you feel yeah. like the character they're establishing is not the person you're going to end up spending that much time with. It always feels like there's such a vast departure that happens pretty quickly. Um, so, I don't, maybe yeah. it's just me. But did you know going in what the, what the yes, premise was? Okay. Um, so, you know, that affects things, I guess. There are a number of movies that I saw this year that I didn't know what the premise oh, yeah, same here. Uh, going in was. Um, uh, and I'm sorry I won't be able to preserve that for everyone because we're going to talk about the Alas. movies here. <laughs> uh, but it, it, um, it, is, it is fun. That's one of the fun things about going to a festival, especially a festival like Sundance as opposed to AFI Fest. Um, as much as I love AFI Fest or have mixed feelings. Um, <laughs> but a festival like Sundance where, you know, 12 of the 14 movies that I saw premiered at Sunday. Right. Uh, you know, and so people don't know, uh, what, you know, or, or if you, it's easy to avoid, I guess. Well, yeah, especially if you're going is. in based on director or stars or whatever, which is usually what I'm, yeah, exactly. You're not looking at the premise at all. So, um, um but now this person, uh, the director before I fall, yeah. uh, her last film was called nobody walks. Um, and I hated it. Oh, really? I don't know if you saw it. No, I didn't okay. know her work at all. Um, what I was going to say though, is that once they kind of get past this establishing stuff, I think they really latch on to 
the terror of experiencing the same day over and over, oh, okay. which like these stories usually present, I think either the whimsy or the unbelievability of it or something. But this, you really get the sense that she's like trapped and she's starting to freak out about what's happening to her, um, which I think is a different kind of note to play. And I think one that fits with it being about a 17 or so year old girl, um, that there's a sense of almost victimization there, I guess, um, that I think ends up being really strong. And, you know, I'm kind of a romantic and a sucker. So when it gets into the life lesson stuff, I found it genuinely moving by the end. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a, a pretty strong little film and uh, much stronger than most YA adaptations I've seen so far. All right, let's move on to, uh, the first one that you and I have both seen. Yeah. Uh, I will start talking though, because I was at the world premiere, uh, Ooh, la, la. and it, well, and there's a story here, as, as you know, um, this, we're talking about Kate Shortland's Berlin syndrome. Um, which is, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know how much I, I, like I said, I only saw 14 movies, but this is definitely a top five of the 14 for me. Um, uh, maybe a top four. Um, uh, and I know you were a fan uh, as well, but, um, the, the premiere had, uh, had, had an issue. Well, first there was a minor, like almost foreshadowing, shadowing of there always is what was to come, which had nothing to do with the present presentation or everything, or, but this was at what's called the Mark, which is the something, something recreational center. Right. Yeah. I was just trying to remember what it is, but I, have no I can't idea. remember. Yeah. Um, but and it is, this is a functioning like rec center, like a gym and like where the, where the, um, screening is, is half a basketball court, which oh, is really, like, I never yes. didn't notice. Um, I know you, I didn't notice either. I knew because, uh, one of the people we were staying with works there. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, and, and she told me that that's what it was. Um, and I guess they, for this night, cause this was a, an eight thirty PM screening, um, of a movie that's a, uh, you know, a little under two hours. So right around, uh, uh, just, I'm going to say it was probably nine 52 PM when suddenly a voice comes over and says, attention, Mark patrons, the Mark will be closing in eight <laughs> minutes. Uh, clearly they're supposed to shut off the PA to that right. part of the thing. And they, um, were unable to, to do that. So in the middle of, <laughs> in the middle of like, um, a very, uh, uncomfortable sex scene, um, we got this announcement that, uh, <laughs> we better, you know, uh, get to the lockers and change into our street clothes or whatever, uh, uh wrap up our pickup basketball games or whatever <laughs> we were doing there. Uh, and then, so that, that was the, the first thing. And then the big thing that happened now, this Berlin syndrome is, uh, is, uh, uh, sort of a, a psychological thriller type of, it's a thriller. I don't know. We'll talk about what it is, but it's a tense movie. Yeah. Which and, I didn't know when you were telling me this story. Yeah. And so I was like, well, you know, that's rough, but it's not that big deal. And then when I saw the movie, I was like, Oh my God. And, and so the point that it like, it's the climax of the movie. The villain is stalking the heroine up the stairs with the crowbar in his hand, <laughs> running his crowbar crowbar along the, uh, the, the railing, uh, of the, of the stairs being very threatening. And then the DCP server crashed and it just froze and it was just frozen for a while. And, uh, then they tried to play what I'm guessing was like a DVD screener that had a oh, watermark damn. on it. <laughs> and then for some, that stopped. Well, it's like they started to try to play that. It jumped ahead um, so we missed a whole part in between. They started showing that then it stopped. Then they tried to go back to the DCP and it jumped ahead even further. And suddenly, so it gave away right. what we had missed completely. And everyone was like, Oh, um, and then they just like brought the lights up and they just started the Q and a, <laughs> um, and Teresa Palmer, the, the star, um, whom I think the only thing I had seen her in that I can remember, uh, is a, 
not that great Australian movie called Wish You Were Here with Joel Edgerton. I did not see that. Um, know what that is at all. But she's been in other stuff, um, and I think she's uh, sort of an up and comer. Um, uh, but she and then the um, the the male star is Rex. Sorry, Max Remelt. I think is his name. Okay, uh, he's on Sense Eight. That's, oh. that's what people would know him from. I still have not seen Sense Eight. Um, either I just saw the first episode. But uh, oh, Teresa Palmer is also Knight of Cups. Oh. And Hacksaw Ridge. Oh, I remember her from Hacksaw Ridge. Okay. Uh, I didn't see either one of those. Um, so then Tr- Teresa Palmer essentially just like tells it, tells us the end of the movie. She's like, okay, so here's what happened. It's coming up the stairs. And then she, she tells us the end of the movie and then they just, just start doing the Q and a. And the first question is some guy who probably thinks he's a fucking hero stands up and just starts shouting about, I don't understand why the programmer isn't down on his knees begging you for, for forgiveness. Jeez. That's what he said to, to Kate Shortland, the director. Yeah. And she's basically like, well, these things happen. And he's like, you're right, sir. I'm very sorry. But then, and then someone else was like there <laughs> instead of a question, they said, I just want you to know, cause it's an Australian and a German and the director's Australian. She's like, and he was like, I just want you to know, not all Americans are rude like that. <laughs> so it was a complete clusterfuck. Uh, and then like they do the Q and a, and then they go, Oh, we fixed it. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess we're going to watch the end of it again. And so then we watched the end of the movie. And then I honestly, I don't know if they finished the Q and a, right. Cause I just, I was like, all right, I, it's been long enough. I've been through enough. Uh, I left. So, um, that's the story. Let's talk about the movie itself. Why not? Which is one that I am glad I didn't know. I know this one of those of, that I don't even know how to talk about because I didn't but, know anything about it. Yeah, but when I, I mean, when I reviewed it, I tried to dance around a little bit, and I was like, "No, I can't." Like, yeah. I need to talk about. And I feel like it's going to be in the trailer and every review, every other review. Yeah, talk about it too. Yeah, and also it's it goes further than that. Oh, you know, for that's sure. only just yeah. So basically, it's uh, an Australian tourist um, who is touring. Uh, sorry, she's touring Berlin or, you know, backpacking through Berlin or to, through Germany or wherever alone. And she meets a, uh, Berliner, uh, like JFK, <laughs> ein Berliner. Um, and they have a sort of, uh, fling, like, you know, like you do when you're traveling alone through Europe, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> people tell me, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then she's, she leaves the hostel she's staying at. She's staying over at his place for a couple nights. She's putting off her trip. Her, you know, she's supposed to move on to Dresden. Um, he gets up to go to work, uh, and she finds that she can't leave the apartment. She's been locked in reinforced glass in the windows, no other inhabitants in the apartment building. And, uh, you suddenly realize this sort of like what seemed like kind of a, I guess I, I say it seemed like a romance, but there are clearly hints of, danger yeah but i, I got I pretty caught up in it i was like but I, there's hot stuff good for her yeah but I, I feel like well the music during the the consummation scene is like when that's true is not love music like right. it's very tense music and there's like a close-up you know when he's driving her around there's a close-up with the car door locking i don't know if you know yeah i didn't know that uh, that, that like there's so little there are little hints that it's not but but suddenly you realize oh this is uh, I guess I keep dancing around calling it a horror movie, but it's essentially a horror movie. It's a more, it's more of a thriller myself, but that's, you know, uh, but I, you know, I saw, variation. um, someone said, uh, Berlin syndrome is essentially silence of the lambs. If it were just about Buffalo bill and Catherine, <laughs> whatever, um, which is not entirely what true of the characters, but of the premise, right. I guess it is kind of like that. It is, it feels like a horror premise classed up a little bit, but what I like about what you, said about the premise and uh is slightly different than what happens which is that that first day that she gets locked in she just assumes it's a mistake 
And then they still got clubbing. And it's not till the next day yeah. that she realizes something's up. Did you uh, realize it was a mistake? Um, I thought it was unusual, but I didn't. I was kind of with her. I don't know. I feel like I'm a paranoid person and I'm like, I would, Oh, if I'd been in her situation, I would have been out of there. The second I had. Yeah. That's uh, exactly. Yeah. What I would have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's something that happens. I don't want to get into where she like has a chance to get the upper hand on him. Uh, uh, that's a no pun intended, but you don't know what I'm talking about. So it doesn't (laughs) matter. And, uh, my feeling in that situation is like, no, go for the jugular. Like, don't, don't try to wound the guy and escape. Like but she does pin him. Uh, well, uh, not well enough. <laughs> I'm saying, I, I'm saying I would have, uh, I would have put something through his, through his windpipe and made sure that it was, that it was done. That's what I'm, like, I'm not leaving any, I guess she uh, wasn't ready to go that far. Uh, I'm not leaving any loose ends <laughs> in that situation. If it's, if it's me or you, it's you. Uh, is what I'm saying. But, uh, no, we're, um, let's talk about the movie <laughs> itself. Uh, it is a, it's a terrific movie. You, yeah. you agree? It's super thrilling. I, you know, edge of my seat, gripping the armrest, the whole deal, the whole time. Uh, yeah. I pretty much loved it. I don't really have any major complaints with it. Uh, it worked exactly like it was supposed to on me. Um, yeah. And, and it's one of two very different movies I saw. Uh, you also saw the other one too. We'll talk about, uh, in two movies from now. Um, that, uh, has a, parallel about the way that um men try to control the women in their lives uh, you know uh i'm not uh, sure i see it as much with this one um i mean you don't see i mean it's it's not uh it's not an accident that the that the the captor is male and the captive is female you know and 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 he it's not just that he keeps her captive he also buys her the 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 sort of the under things and the uh i guess that's true. there's and, like and a friendliness the, there that's a little in the nail polish that he wants her to wear and he expects her he, he i mean if i were in this situation i would not i would like to think i would not be very what's what i'm looking for uh willing is not the word i'm looking for um but uh he expects her to go along. Right. Yeah. You know, he expects her not, he didn't, she's not chained to the wall the whole time. Right. No, that's a good point. He's trying to turn her into his idea of an ideal domestic partner. Yeah. And it's a very twisted, twisted thing. And, um, uh, I, yeah, I don't think that, uh, I don't think the, the parallels and parables here, um, are a mistake, even though that's not all that's going on. There's also right. this whole thing about the sort of the, uh, political history of of berlin the the film takes place not just in berlin but in the part that was east berlin yeah um and and that the the sort of the specter of the gdr is um in ways overt and covert i guess <laughs> um uh present throughout you know throughout the the movie you know it was the creepiest thing in this movie to me for reasons i cannot put my finger on so i'm curious if you agree when she first finds that massage chair uh-huh. And it's just moving and it's old and torn up. There's something very creepy about that to me. Uh, well, it reminded me of the massage chair at the end of Breaking Bad. I don't know if you watched. Oh, yeah, Bad, totally. But that's the first thing I thought of was, <laughs> uh, yeah, the massage chairs are creepy. I they guess are. it's a shorthand for creepiness. Um, let's move on to the movie. We have both already mentioned it. We both saw it. Uh, it was the last film that I saw at Sundance this year. Uh, Luca Guadagnino Guadagnino. That's a great guest. Um, call me by your name. 
and this is um i i told you as i go along i was going to point out my three favorites and my one least favorite uh this is my absolute favorite thing that i saw is my second at, favorite at the, at the festival oh, i can't wait to find out what, the, what your favorite is you know um do i when we get there you'll remember oh okay um but yeah the, uh i uh i just i just loved the this movie um there's an, i mean it, for it's festival movies tend to be shorter than other like studio prestige movies. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes, sometimes they can be much longer. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm saying most of the movies that I saw at Sundance were in the 90 to a hundred minute. Yeah. Well, Sundance, I think Um, independent American films tend to be that length. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I guess that's true of LA film fest too. Those all tend to be around the same, uh, the same length, but it's from the same pool. Um, whereas this is the movie is the second longest movie that I saw by two minutes. Um, (laughs) and it, flew by for, oh, for sure um i wanted it to keep going it's the kind of movie that you can just luxuriate in as the characters are doing because they're on a summer long vacation in northern italy uh um, vacation of sorts it's a working vacation for the kid's father and the an army hammer yeah i guess um but i mean this is their this is their summer home oh for that sure they yeah. own like uh, yeah, I guess yes. The uh, Michael Stewart character is is working, but I don't want to give the impression that these aren't fantastically rich people. Oh, which for they sure, could, no. they clearly are very rich people. There's no question they're enjoying themselves. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because Michael Stuhlbarg plays what I mean, I, like I said, I missed the first couple of minutes of this, so he's like okay. an archaeologist, I guess. Well, he they refer to Army Hammer refers to him as professor. Right. So, so he's some kind of professor of history because they keep digging up these artifacts and going through. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, I guess archaeology would be part of but it. I guess it, it is it all seems art. like it's more. Yeah, it's art history. So, yeah. But yeah. Um, and then our Army Hammer plays this guy who comes to join us, his assistant, I guess, for a few months. Yeah. Six weeks, I think they say. Oh, do they say that? Yeah, because yeah. I was reading the book synopsis. Okay. It's based on a novel. And the <laughs> right. novel said, yeah, the book synopsis said six weeks. But this is when I was writing my review. I was like, do they say six weeks in the they movie? They do say six weeks. So I left that out. Yeah. Okay. So it is six weeks. Um, uh, so Michael Stuhlbarg is the professor. Um, the, the There's uh, his wife, and then they have one son, a 17-year-old um, named uh, Elio, who is played by Timothy Chalamet, uh, who um, uh, we were, were... You were talking... Were you with us talking about him after the no. movie? Okay, this must have been before uh, you joined the group. What do you know? Do you know him? I was looking him up earlier. I think he was in Interstellar. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of... he was. He's the young Casey yeah. Affleck in Interstellar. But uh, as I'm one of a handful of people who saw and loved this movie last year, he's also um, in Miss Stevens. Oh, I where, did see that. I uh, forgot. Yeah, he was in that. Um, he's terrific in that. And yeah. I, I already... When I saw his name in the opening credits, I immediately knew like, Oh, that's that kid from Miss Stevens who was, go. who was so good. Uh, and so he is now, uh, one to one to watch. Oh, he's for me. exceptional in this movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, part of it is that, uh, Luca Guadagnino kind of, he knows how to, what is, Oh, there's a cat on my leg. That's what's going on. Uh, <laughs> he recognizes that long sections of film can just be about people, taking pleasure in where they're in and the company they're in and there doesn't have to be kind of overt conflict. So, you know, the kid can just go play the piano because it's fun to play the piano and he can go out with girls and he lets the actor's charms come come across a lot of the time without, you know, burying them in plot or like I said, even overt conflict most of the time. Uh, yeah. Um, 
what I found so, uh, naturalistic and yet alien at the same time about this, this family and the way that they spend their times and time and the way that they talk to one another is that, and maybe it's just because I'm so accustomed to, you know, uh, art dramas about families being about secrets and lies, but like this family is like always completely honest with each other. Not in like a cruel way, but they're very always, but they're very, well, let me finish. (laughs) They don't lie to one another. Right. They do keep secrets, but not what I'm trying to get to. Um, and I tweeted about this. So somehow I was able to make it fit into 140 characters. And yet now <laughs> it's going to take me 10 minutes to get through it. But, um, generally in a movie when characters are keeping secrets, it's, it's usually like a plot thing to, to create conflict right. because at some point the secret will need to be revealed and that's, what's going to get you into the third actor or whatever, right. that sort of thing here the secrets that are kept are all positive personal confidences and the act of sharing a secret or and not necessarily a secret like we think of it, but a secret place, like yeah. a place you go to read or uh, an attic where you go to read or have sex or listen to the radio. Like when you share a secret and these secrets are, like I said, manifested in actual places often in this movie. Um, it's a positive thing. It's the currency of the growing intimacy between two people that I'm yeah, sharing this, sure. this place and this secret with you. And so I found it like interesting that, uh, and fascinating that Luca Guadagnino was able to make a two hour and 10 minute movie about people who were generally open with each other. <laughs> in, in most movies that would accelerate the plot too quickly. Yeah. If people weren't hiding things uh, from one another, um, he was able to luxuriate in this long runtime um, with characters who were generally very open and say what they mean. And, Therefore, when there are things that they keep to themselves, they become all that much more powerful. Yeah, but also, I mean, there is some tension in the secrets they keep, and you wonder if the secrets will become more of an issue between them. Um, but what I was really thrilled by with the film is that Guadagnino steered into the skid of the things he's really good at, which, like I said, is honesty and people bonding and these magnificent environments in which they spend their time. Whereas his last two films, the bigger splash and I'm love like felt the need to layer on tragedy to their plots eventually. Um, when what was so good about them was just the, the more positive emotions that were going on. So this is the movie you've been wanting him to make. Uh, I suppose you know. so without even really thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, we didn't even really say what the story is, but, uh, Elio, be better. uh, what's that might be for the better. It's hard yeah. to say. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. And there's a, there's a romance, I guess. Yeah. I, I do also want to say that the cinematography, which I assumed was by his, like some cinematography to work with before, cause it looks so much like his last two films, but it was actually by the guy who shot uncle boon me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I saw and that. It is predictably gorgeous. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Um, let's move on to another one you and I both saw, but we have differences of opinion about because I really liked this slightly. Movie. Yeah. I'm still working through this one. Uh, I really liked this movie. Um, this is one that was not a premiere premiered, uh, at Toronto last, last fall. Um, uh, and it's Nacho Vigalando's colossal, which if you don't know is the, uh, alcoholism drama. That's also <laughs> a giant, uh, Asian monster movie. In parts, <laughs> to an extent. Uh, I, I think people have been overselling the monster part of this maybe a little bit. In terms of, like, screen time, yeah, I see what you're saying, but it, needed, it needs to be a monster movie to have the climax that it has, and right. the climax is, even though this has been a 
personal drama about relationships and alcoholism <laughs> the whole time. The climax is at the level of a monster movie. Right. And I think that's one of the things I like about it so much is that he, um, brought those two things together. He gave you the big satisfying climactic battle of, uh, of a monster movie, but he also gave you the not quite entirely satisfying resolution to the alcoholism plot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I so. Like he, he, you know, he, I think he says, I think what he's saying is like, it's cathartic to get through this breakthrough of the good monster defeating the bad monster. Right. Right. Uh, but there's also this little reminder at the very end. It's, it's a laugh line, but it's also kind of a sad laugh. Not even a line. It's a, it's a facial reaction, um, that you get a laugh and it's the very end of the movie. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Um, that is also saying yes, but her problems with alcohol are not going to be so easily solved. Right. Uh, and I, I, I really found that, um, very, uh, delicately, uh, but confidently handled. Uh, and I liked it quite a bit. I see what you're saying there. I still, which I said to you when we first talked about it, I, I don't think the acting is terribly well resolved for whatever they're going for here. I just feel like it's a constant distancing mechanism that just left me distanced. I never felt involved and there's a sense of humor to the whole thing that didn't feel like people avoiding their problems at all. It just felt like the movie was a very flip about what it was about. See, I, I think that, um, that, that it's, I, I, I don't think that's fair at all to call it, to call it flip. I okay. think that you can have humor, um, you, you know, call it gallows humor or call it what you want, but you can have humor, um, that maybe helps guide you through the, 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 the rougher shit that you're going through. And this does get into some rough shit. It's not just alcoholism. This is the other one I was talking about, yeah. uh, about the way that, um, you know, men, especially men with, you know, small men with low self-esteem try to control the women in their lives. Um, this is the other one. Um, uh, I don't want to get too much into that because I feel like that part of this plot plot is kind of a surprise. For sure. It's a development. Uh, yeah. So I don't want to get into it too deeply, but, um, I think it handles, it handles those things well while also being funny. And I think it's, I think if you remember correctly, from our preview episode, you have not seen Nacho Vigalando's previous no, work. Nothing. Cause this is, I, I didn't see time crimes, which is probably his biggest one. Weirdly. That's the one I haven't seen, but, uh, with extraterrestrial and with a for apocalypse, um, from, uh, um, from the ABCs of death. Um, that is very much his style. There's a, there's a sort of, uh, a, a gloss to the exteriors uh, mm-hmm. of his movies. And I think that's where the arch uh, performances come in. That's where the comedy comes in. Um, but they're really, it's really just a, a pretty, pretty casing for something deeper that he's exploring. I think about human relationships. Uh, I think he does a good job of it. Yeah. The one area where I would say, I think the archness works is the relationship the characters have to the damage that they're doing across the world. Cause we haven't even really explained the basic premise, but there's like a psychic link between, uh, Anne Hathaway and this monster that shows up in South Korea. Yeah. Uh, and eventually that mos- monster does some damage and she is responsible for it to an extent. But in the same way that when you watch the news and, you know, 40 people drown in a flood somewhere or in a building collapse, you know, it's like you feel bad, but there's only so much you can take that in, I guess. And it, yeah, and it's hard not to treat it as a spectacle, which the movie, um, 
comments on when Jason Sudeikis' character owns a bar. Yeah. And as these things start happening right. on the news, his bar starts doing a lot better. Right. People start hanging out to watch the, to have drinks and watch the, the news together. It becomes an event. And you hear people cheering on the events as they progress. And yeah, so th- yeah. I, I do think there's some interesting stuff in there. Like I said, I, I don't like outright hate it. We'll get later to a movie that you loved and I hated, but, um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is, I just didn't feel as quite as successful as you do. Uh, all right. Well, uh, agree to disagree. I, right. I still hope you check out Extraterrestrial someday because it's it's really great. Someday. Um, I felt like there was one more thing I was going to mention about. Uh, oh, I was going to tell. Uh, I stayed for some of the Q and A here, um, and uh, Nacho Vigalando is a is a is a delight. Um, uh, and someone asked. Um, uh, someone asked, uh, "Why did you set the?" you know, the kaiju part in South Korea of right. all countries. And he, and he was like, it's so cheap. Like, it's <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, but then he went on to talk about how it needed to be in a non-white country right. for the, for exactly the points that you're, that you're making. Um, he needed to set the, the, the damage they were causing needed to happen at some place. Very, very different from where yeah, they for are. Sure. Um, anyway. Uh, all right. One that you saw, but I and I was going to see, but I didn't. Is up next. Oh, I didn't know you were going to see it. I had a, uh, oh, yeah, I, I no, had a I, ticket. Actually, I recall this now. And then I tried to go to the march again, and I honestly probably could have done both <laughs> and been there at the same time. Um, it is Alicia Schurchens and Christian Jimenez's uh, family life. It's a Chilean film that has a very strong premise. It's about this kind of loser, dopey guy. Doesn't really have anything going on. Doesn't really have any major goals in life. Uh, he ends up house sitting for an old family friend uh, while he and his family are away on some sort of vacation. Um, And in the process meets a young, attractive woman and starts kind of posing as though the house is his and that uh, his family has deserted him. You know, his wife doesn't let us see his kids. He creates this whole like kind of sad sack backstory, um, which I think they realize is such a strong premise that, they didn't really think about what else to do with it because once they establish that there's a lot of time just killing in this house and they don't really develop the character relationships at all. There's very long extended sex scenes that don't really add much to the story or teach us anything about the way the characters are relating to one another. Uh, you know, it's an 80 minute movie that feels very long and not in a very productive way. Uh, it's very pretty to look at. It was shot in four three, which is very eye catching. Uh, but on the whole, I you know it, it was the first film I saw at Sundance, and it wasn't the strongest way to start it, I guess. Okay, um, on to uh, and now I lost the <laughs> France list. Uh, yes, yeah, so the one we saw together, uh, the new um, Francois Ozon film. This is the besides Colossal, this is the other film that I saw at Sundance that wasn't a Sundance premiere. Um, but it's uh, the takes place in Germany immediately after uh, World War One, and um, it's a small German town, and we're sort of given this uh, um, uh, just illustration of a defeated nation um, retreating into some sort of hardline nationalism that I've, I felt kind of resonated given what was going on in America yeah. uh, at, while we were at Sundance and is continuing to go on uh, today. Um, but that's not really what the, the story is, is about the story is about the, the, uh, a widow who was living with the parents of her um, late uh, fiance and the, who died in the war. I should make that clear. 
Um, and then a, uh, a Frenchman, a hated Frenchman, uh, <laughs> comes to town and starts visiting her fiance's grave. Yeah. Uh, and you know, who is this guy? How did he know? How did he know France and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that's what the story is about, or at least the first half. And then, um, it does become a different story of sorts in the second half, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> For sure. Um, this is based on a 1932 Ernst Lubitsch movie that isn't available on DVD. Not many people have seen. I haven't seen it, and I love Lubitsch. Um, but it's one of the rare kind of straightforward dramas he made. And I was going to ask if you'd seen it. No, unfortunately, I still haven't. I want to, though. But And I, I think a lot of us were curious what a guy like Francois Ozon was doing with a Lubitsch film, <laughs> remaking it. Um, but I think it connects a lot to at least the films of his I've seen, which are just the previous three, um, in terms of eventually the story goes on. People have to create certain narratives to keep up certain illusions, I guess, and to maintain relationships. But it's not, I guess, in a negative way. And I think that connects with a lot of his previous work, which is very connected to ways people present themselves in different environments and how these aren't necessarily, even though they're contradictory, they aren't necessarily like false or, uh, they're negative, I guess, just because they're contradictory. Um, I want to ask why, why didn't this seem Ozan and Lubitsch seem like to you? Why did they, what do you see as the differences? Well, the films, uh, Ozan's I've seen are mostly kind of thrillers in a way. Okay, I guess, but they're also melodramas. Yeah, uh, but Lubitsch mostly made comedies. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you're right, but I, but I guess it's uh, yeah. I said okay. Now I see what you're saying, but yeah, uh, I, I think of Ozan as being um, uh, a classicist, classicalist uh, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would agree with um, that. And um, something like, so I'm guessing. So if you've seen the last three, that's the new girlfriend, young and beautiful, um, and in the house. Okay, uh, and I've. Um, so you haven't seen under the sand, which was the first Ozon that I saw Okay, when I was probably 16. I saw it at the, uh, at a movie theater when it was when I first got my driver's license and nice. could go to movies on my own and started like really seeing art movies. Uh, and I've, I've been, so I've been in love with Ozon since I was 16. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, it, it didn't, it didn't seem, no, I, I also, I didn't know the Lubitsch film either. Um, but it didn't seem like that, difficult to well now that jump. i think about it actually that idea of presenting yourself as several different people is pretty lubitching too so uh maybe i need to revisit my <laughs> love of one of my favorite directors but I, anyway i thought this was a very fascinating and layered and yeah. emotional and you know kind of quietly thrilling film there's not kind of any suspense sequences as there have been in his last few but there's a lot of suspense i think in terms of the character decisions and what people are going to do and who they'll choose to be or how they'll choose to present themselves. And yeah. Um, there's also, I think, uh, an intentional, um, I don't know what, what the word is, uh, sleight of hand, intentional misleading. Um, okay. I don't know if you saw it either, but I think the, the story of how, uh, um, what's his Adrian? Yeah. Um, knows France, um, is revealed to be something different than I thought the film was building toward. Yeah, I, uh, I know what you mean. Okay. Um, and that was definitely a moment where I was like, Ozan's really adapting this because this probably wasn't in the <laughs> 32 <laughs> right. movie, but it ends up not going down that road anyway. But I wonder if Lubitsch might have made the same sort of nods to it knowing Lubitsch. Um, and let me ask you then, finally, what did you think of the... Because it's a black and white film. Mostly. Yeah, so I was going to say, what do you think of the use of, of color? 
I, I liked it because I couldn't quite get a handle on it. At first, it seemed like it was only going to be the flashbacks, and then it wasn't. Um, and it seemed maybe like it was when the characters were coming alive or something, but I don't think it was strictly that either. I interpreted it as, because, yeah, at first it is just a flashbacks. I interpreted it as the color comes back when the people who knew France start to feel like he's there again when they're hearing stories and okay. playing like playing the violin yeah. you know like for months now all when they've thought of Franz, all they've thought of is how sad they are and the fact that that their loved one was taken from them right but at any point that it starts to feel happy like they have have happy memories of Franz again that's when the color comes back because it's first it's a flashback then it's the violin yeah. then it's uh when uh anna takes adrian to where Franz proposed to her right. i think is the third one um, and then I think very tellingly for most of the second half, there's no color. Yeah. Uh, uh, that was my interpretation of how the color was used. No, that makes sense. Um, I feel like it, the color looked kind of weird though. It was super pretty in black and white, but uh-huh. I feel like the color stuff wasn't that attractive. Uh, I guess you're right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That'd be my only minor issue with it. But, uh, Paula beer who plays Anna, the main character is I think really exceptional. Um, and I put her down in my IndieWire survey for Sundance feedback as one of the best performances I saw there. Uh, oh, nice. And yeah, I just feel like it was a movie that not many people saw, but I'm so glad that it did. It actually comes out in March um, in New York and L.A. and eventually other places, I assume. It's released by Music Box, and their stuff usually goes on Netflix, too, so people have a chance to check it out. Yeah, and if it's Music Box, they'll probably send me a DVD, whether I ask <laughs> one or not, but good, I'll take it. There you go. Um, I'd rather have a Blu-ray with this one. Uh, yeah, they, you know what? They have sent me some Blu-rays, yeah. but uh, yeah, if you come to a Battleship Retention meetup <laughs> event, uh, there's a good chance you'll get to take some Music Box DVDs home with you because we seem to get all of them. And you should. They release great films. Uh, they really do, yeah. Um, and I've definitely held on to the ones that I that I wanted uh, the most. Some of you won't get a copy of France. <laughs> um, okay, so the next one is your favorite, yeah. right? Yeah. You remembered. Yes. Uh, this is David Lauer's A Ghost Story, um, which if you listen to the preview episode, you'll r- recall that I don't particularly like David Lauer's last two films, uh, Anthem Body Saints and Anthem Dragons Pete's. Uh, which, <laughs> and now we've got Anthem Stories Ghosts. Right, naturally. Uh, I really hope all his titles end up fitting this. <laughs> if he makes a movie just called like Dave or something one day, it's going to be very disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ain't this movie Dave? Yeah. Uh, You're saying if he remakes the Kevin Klein right, vehicle, Dave. Okay. Ain't this remake Dave's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought his last few films kind of were trying to fit into a rhythm that he didn't feel naturally. And he was kind of going through motions of making, essentially other people's films and making films that he might want to see other people to make, but didn't really have a sense of how to make them himself. This is like completely his own film. This is something that nobody else would ever think to make because it's too, it's far too weird. Um, the basic story is that, uh, Casey Affleck and Remara play this couple. I couldn't tell if they were married. I don't know if the film specifies it. I kind of gather that they were, uh, but they do live together and, they kind of run a small music studio at home. So they spend a lot of time in this Texas house. Uh, very soon in the movie, Casey Affleck dies in a car accident and then comes back to life as a ghost, but not the ghost you usually see in the movie. He is the complete white sheet, black eye hole ghost. (laughs) Yeah. So that's just the first thing that starts getting a little odd about this movie, but the movie takes it completely seriously, even though it does let you kind of laugh at it and kind of have some fun with it. But he 
is given a moment where he can choose to go to the afterlife and he turns left instead and then chooses to just stay in this house and watch Runimara moon moon mourn his loss <laughs> and uh watches her just kind of go about her day. There's huge stretches of this film after the point where he dies, where there's just no dialogue at all. And it's just him sitting in this house and her sitting in the house. Uh, and obviously she can't see him, but he it establishes that he has a physical presence. And so he can loosely affect things and he can try to comfort her, but not quite get there. And it, it's incredibly moving. And from where it goes from there, I don't want to spoil at all, but it, takes the notion of a haunted house movie to the furthest extremes you could possibly imagine in terms of the physical space playing an important part in terms of what it would take for a spiritual being a ghost if you will to move on from that environment uh and it's just an incredibly gorgeous moving film that i don't i mean you've said before that you're an easy cry at movies i don't cry easily and i definitely teared up during this one uh and yeah, I was just completely blown away that David Lowry had something this this original in him after making so many, like I said, kind of imi- not so many. He made two movies, uh, kind of imitative movies mm-hmm. um, that he had something this kind of striking. This was also actually shot in four three. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either, which was kind of a delight when the uh, masking started to move inward on the screen. I was like, this is unusual, um, <laughs> but it's it's very beautifully shot and. Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara's performances are really strong. I think much stronger than they were in Anthem Body Saints. Uh, they have a very definite physical relationship at the beginning that you can tell it's two people who work well together and who are used to each other's bodies in a way, which is something that's hard to get on screen, you know, because you, the relationships between actors have to build very quickly before the movie goes into production. But this, you really feel a lived in relationship between the two of them. So that by the time Casey Affleck dies, you can feel kind of his absence, even though, you know, technically he's in the room. I tried to look up if he's always under the sheet in the movie because that's uh-huh. something you could easily cheat, but I couldn't find any definite answer. So hopefully when the movie actually comes out, that will be resolved. But yeah, it's so far the best movie I've seen of 2017. And I, I mean, I hope something tops it, but you never know. Exciting. Uh, speaking of exciting, uh, you, you, and are, so. you and I are coming in, <laughs> coming to this next one from very different, uh, reactions. This is, I would say my third favorite film that I saw at the festival. And I think it's your least favorite. Is that right? Man, I, I didn't think to look up exactly my least favorite, but it probably, actually, I think it might be scrolling through this real quick. That's okay, your well, family life. Um, uh, well, let's, uh, uh, yeah, when, when we did the preview episode, I mentioned I was very much looking forward to the new Alex Ross Perry film, Golden Exits. You mentioned that you weren't so much, but you did see it anyway. Well, I know I was apprehensive. I, I feel like, because I loved The Color Reel, Alex Ross Perry's second movie. And then, you know, listen to Philip, whatever problems I have with it, it's a very remarkably crafted film. And I think he has a lot of the right inspirations and he has a lot of the right instincts. And so I'm always curious about what he's up to. I just, it's just been a while since one's really worked for me. Uh, so golden exits is, uh, I guess it's technically one of those like interlocking, like inter- interwoven, like tapestry movies, it right? Is. Cause yeah. a bunch of people whose lives overlap, but it doesn't seem very interested in, playing up that part of it. Like it's not, even though there are tons of coincidences and there's tons of things where characters are one degree separated from one another, but never learn that. Yeah. I think Uh, there are a couple of Jason Schwartzman's entrances that play into that structure where it's like, didn't expect him to be here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But other than that. Um, Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Uh, But really what I liked about it, it's um, I found it funny. Um, 
not as funny as listen up phil no um it'd be hard to be <laughs> yeah uh but i i found it funny and i also found it even even given those last two films he made i found it remarkably cynical in a way that i am okay with for an hour and a half um because basically it's a movie about people who talk constantly the movie is just full of people talking yeah and it's everything they say is pretty much bullshit um and not only are they not hearing one another they're also not looking at themselves basically every character from my point of view is interpreting the other characters through the things they hate and hate to and and refuse to acknowledge about themselves uh, i think that's true in some parts especially mary louise parker's scene with uh emily browning i think that's that really comes across um yeah i was but i would say all of um lily ray but not only tipton's scenes in which mostly they talk about mary louise parker <laughs> even though we don't technically realize it's mary louise parker until halfway through the movie right uh, they're talking about um because that's not like they're like the movie, so the, the characters are like Emily Browning, who's, I guess I would say the nexus of the movie is mid twenties. Yeah. And then you've got Lily Ray, Annalie Tipton and Jason Schwartzman who are mid thirties. And you've got Adam Horowitz, Chloe Savini and Mary Louise Parker who are mid forties. And they're all, there are these generational differences that they're all looking, everyone's looking at other generations, either ahead of or behind them uh, and projecting what they want to be don't want to be were hated th- that they were onto these other characters uh and not actually uh not actually enjoying one another's company ever but there's also this and this is the part that it really bothered me about the film is that most of the scenes between the women i think they are just saying what's on their mind and laying out character beats like i i don't see how you can see the scene with uh lily rabe where she's just talking about how she feels like she hasn't moved to further enough in life for the age that she's at and not see that as just purely self-confessional. Um, you're talking about her. I think it's the same with Annalie Tipton. Uh, yeah. Um, which I learned is pronounced Annalie. Um, all right. I learned that at the Q and a, uh, <laughs> I had said Annalie right. up until that point, but I learned it's pronounced Annalie. Um, but the, her whole, the whole reason she's saying that is because she's really just talking about, um, Gwen, right? Um, Mary Louise Parker's character. You think? Yeah. Cause she spends all day. She's like, I'm saying she's a mid thirties woman right. who spends all day every day because she's a, an overworked personal assistant right. with, uh, a woman in her mid forties, mid forties who, um, made, who is single by choice, right. childless by choice, um, does whatever she wants. And yet is a, miserable piece of shit most of the time. Uh, and I think that's exactly what's, I, I, I think she's talking, maybe she is talking about her fears, but she's really just talking about, uh, she's only talking about it because she's spending all day steeped in Mary Louise Parker's bullshit. Right. Because she's miserable about her own life, not because she's reading misery into Gwen's life. But I've been saying she's looking at Gwen and saying, this person is making the same choices that I've made. I am also single and childless, my mid thirties. Um, and this person in terms of money and freedom has the things that I want out of that, but is clearly unhappy. Uh, and is, she's therefore backwards projecting that onto her choices and 
I, I mean, I, 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 I think you're giving the movie way too much credit. <laughs> I, 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 I guess I come up with an interpretation and I make everything fit it. Um, but uh, that's what being a film critic is, right? Uh, in some ways. No, but, uh, but it, this was also more striking to me because the scene revolving around men, they were allowed to kind of bury their feelings and say these kind of sideways things that weren't self-confessional at all that were generally avoiding whatever they were really going through. And the scenes between the men and the scenes between the women or any scenes involving men and the scenes that were just involving women were so, so differently structured that it didn't seem like just like a gender thing. It seemed, or it did seem like a gender thing, but far too much. It it was like that Alex Ross Perry didn't have a strong handle on the way women actually relate to one another. And this is part of the problem I have with the queen of earth too, is that he like, found this construction that he'd seen before in the serious Woody Allen movies or in the Ingmar Bergman movies that he kind of layered onto it, but didn't have the poetry that the better ones of those filmmakers do and just found this self-confessional mode that he assumes women talk in all the time. I guess I don't know that they don't. (laughs) I don't know for sure either, but I would be surprised. All right. So, uh, I thought it was really good. Looks good, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's not quite as striking, I think, as the last two, but it's the same cinematographer, Sean Price Williams, and that guy knows how to frame a shot. Uh, was it shot on oh, yeah. 16 millimeter yeah. film? Okay. Alex Ross Perry is big on film. Yeah. Um, but is, it is 16 millimeters, what I'm. Oh, I'm almost positive. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it looked like it. All right. Um, oh, no, I get to. Oh, my. No, I had four in a row that you didn't see. Oh, damn. I'll try um, to ask questions. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was very excited for um, Brett Haley's new film, The Hero, because his last film, I'll See You in My Dreams, with Blythe Danner, I thought was a delight. It was okay. Uh, I I really (laughs) loved it. Um, But The Hero is, I don't know if I could even say that it's it's okay. It's, uh, uh, other than having solid performances, you've got Sam Elliott playing a sort of alternate universe version of himself. Um, Sam Elliott plays a, uh, an actor named Lee Hayden who basically had one big, uh, Western role in the late seventies. It's even like a similar setup to his name as Sam Elliott. <laughs> <Lee> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and now makes most of his money doing, uh, voiceovers for commercials. Um, so the, the opening scene is him in a recording booth recording, uh, the, the the narration for a barbecue sauce ad, which is something you could very much see Sam Elliott doing. Um, uh, but then in pretty much the next scene after that, um, he finds out he has pancreatic cancer. And um, he is estranged from his uh, wife and his uh, daughter. His daughter's played by Kristen Ritter. Um, his only real friend is his uh, drug dealer who used to be an actor uh, played by Nick Offerman, who is absolutely the best part of the movie. Um, uh, I'll, I'll quote, um, I mentioned uh, Jason Bailey earlier. He said, if the entire movie had been Sam Elliott and Nick Offerman <laughs> getting high and watching Buster Keaton movies, it would be my favorite movie. of That sentence. sounds pretty solid. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, that's, that's the best stuff. Uh, and then Sam Elliott starts a, romance with another client of Nick Offerman's played by Laura Prepon. So yes, we get Sam Elliott in Laura Prepon love scenes as we've always wanted. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and I, uh, like I said, the, the performances are, are great on their own, but there's so much, and I think there's some things in the early part about like his life as an actor who was comfortable he's a, he's a you know he's not happy 
necessarily, you're not fulfilled right. as an artist, but he's financially quite comfortable. Um, and I think there's a, there, there's a, um, a sort of bittersweet disconnected feeling to the early scenes that I, that I liked, but I think as it becomes more of a plot and especially as we introduce Laura Prepon's, uh, I would say, sardonic pixie dream girl um, <laughs> uh it becomes a little more more false uh and then this is just a personal thing for me that maybe soured me on it a little bit she's supposed to be a stand-up i'm a big fan of stand-up comedy i've seen a lot of stand-up comedy in my life so whenever there's movies um where stand-up it becomes part of the plot right uh i'm very hard on on it you know um obvious child did it well most movies don't yeah uh, and this one, uh, oh, it, it's very much like the comedian in that sense, uh, which you still haven't seen, right? I'm not keep avoiding it. You're doing a great <laughs> job. Um, but it's very much like the comedian in that it like for some of the stand up scenes, it employs actual stand up. So this like okay. Ali Wong and Cameron Esposito are in this movie doing stand up, and it's like they're great. And then right. Cameron Esposito is like, all right, let me bring up my friend <laughs> Laura Prepon's character, and then it's Laura Prepon trying to be a comedian it's a different uh, i don't know uh, yeah i wonder how much of that is just the knowledge that she's not and the other people are yeah maybe uh but uh, i really wanted to like it but uh mostly mostly couldn't has sam elliott ever had a lead role before <laughs> like that's i haven't seen question. every movie he's in but like that's a good question i've never heard of any movie of sam elliott playing the lead character yeah um vamp for a second all right. Um, you know, I'm scrolling through his filmography here. He was in a ton of stuff, but I feel like his breakout was so late into his career that he was already a supporting character for so long that, and then, you know, the, he's made, I think a strong impression the last couple of years, especially playing these kind of boyfriend roles in these old people movies like grandma and I'll see you in my dreams. He's very good at playing that kind of like yeah. casual dude late into his life. Uh, but in terms of that kind of character carrying a whole movie, I just wonder if that's part of the problem. Uh, maybe, but like I said, Laura Prepon's a bigger <laughs> problem in the movie than, Fair enough. than he is. Do you uh, usually like Laura Prepon? Uh, I guess I don't usually have thoughts on <laughs> Laura Prepon. Well, you probably don't watch Orange is the New Black. Then. I don't watch Orange okay. is the New Black. That's really the only thing I know her from. Yeah, I guess uh, I don't have many thoughts. All right. All right. All right. Here's a movie that I was skeptical about, then it premiered, and I was reading on Twitter all these great things People about it. excited. I was like, all right, I'm excited. I got a ticket for this first thing in the morning and I ended up really hating it. It's not, I'm not, I'm going to say it's not as my second least favorite, not my least favorite, but I really hated making Blair's directorial debut. I don't feel at home in this world anymore, uh, which premiered the day of the inauguration. And therefore, um, no one could help themselves making jokes about the title. Naturally. Um, uh, well, not isn't to, that not, kind of what the movie's about? See, but the, <laughs> Here's what the movie is. Okay. <laughs> and this is, again, a personal thing, but I think it should be, I think more people should be bothered by this kind of thing. Because another movie that I hate, uh, even though I generally like, like other films by this director, but I hate Mike Judge's idiocracy. Um, and because I, it's because I hate this, the, the movie's attitude of, God, everyone's really dumb and awful except cool people like you and me, right, viewer? That's how I feel, like it's, uh, like it, that it's smug and elitist and that's exactly the the tone that I get from I Don't Feel at Home in This World. I mean, I haven't seen I Don't Feel at Home in This World, but I will say, in Idiocracy's defense, there are a lot of dumb people in the world, and it's okay to feel a little bit smug towards them. 
and uh, maybe that's well, just me. I don't. Well, I don't that feel I... that that's a completely successful movie. I'm glad it exists as a point of reference for various things, like <laughs> uh, saying it has electrolytes and uh, various other. You know, the I can't remember the president's name. But the guy Terry Crews plays uh, Camacho. Yeah, yeah. There's just very. I think there's uh, various reference points in that film that I'm glad exist. Uh, and I guess in the same vein, I don't feel at home. I'm going to just call it that for now. There you go. Um, when it focuses on comedy, it has a really great sort of dry, but sometimes absurd sense of humor, uh, that I really like. There's a, there's a bit that could be just pure, that it's just pure parody, which you don't expect out of this movie, but there's a part where they're trying to find, they have a license plate number. Okay. Uh, I didn't tell you the story. Melanie nope. Linsky plays uh, 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 a character whose house gets robbed and she um, ends up ha- uh, haphazardly recruiting her loner Christian, uh, s- like samurai obsessed neighbor right. played by Elijah Wood to help her like track down her stuff. And they end up going in this like sort of accidental and increasingly violent revenge spree. But that's not really what they're trying to do. Okay. Um, and the movie that I just described is better than the movie that I actually <laughs> it saw. Sounds pretty good, by the way. Um, but there's a part when they have a license plate number and they're trying to find out who it is, okay. and all they have to do is like Google and then like pay some money, like <laughs> right. to it. But the film, but the 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 sequence is shot and cut like it's a hacker thriller. <laughs> uh, it's a very funny sequence. And there's another part in a mansion where, uh, an overzealous security guard is going room to room, clearing the room, like right. with his gun out that just like goes on forever <laughs> to the point where the other characters just start like having the conversation. You right. keep hearing shouting, <laughs> shout clear. Like that. That's it, th- those two parts are, are very funny. Um, uh, but I think the overall smugness and then also, uh, now, Macon, uh, I don't know if this comparison is fair, but Macon Blair, I think, is best known as the lead in Jeremy Saulnier's Blue Ruin. Right. Um, and so it's hard not to compare this movie to to Blue Ruin. I feel um, like a lot of people were. Uh, yeah, and, and both of them are movies that um, are dryly and very darkly comic that become increasingly more violent as they go on. But I think the thing about Blue Ruin is that it never loses its empathy and it's a very sad movie. Okay. Whereas I don't think that's uh, uh, some the the violence here feels too glib and the darkness um, ends up making just like turning me off a little bit because it felt it feels self-conscious, uh, I guess. Um, I don't know. I don't want to go into any details, but uh, it does get really bloody Uh, i have to say like there are hints early on uh that this movie is gonna be a little uh intense and then but it's mostly kind of a slow burn and then about 20 minutes before the end the floodgates open and it gets (laughs) really bloody um and uh uh it was it's just not my kind of movie i guess all right um but it is one of two movies i saw uh, I, I like n- noting uh, trends at Sundance because I saw three movies that take place in the 1990s. Right. We already talked about one, Golden Exits, even though it never says the year. It's, um, yeah, probably. R- I'm guessing around 96. That yeah. was my guess. Um, uh, I saw three movies that take place in the 1990s. I also saw two different movies in which something 
happens that is sudden and violent and a character's reaction is to immediately start vomiting. All right. <laughs> uh, and I don't feel at home is, is one of them. We'll get to the other one, the other one later. Uh, if I remember to point that out. All right. But on to my actual least favorite movie of the year, uh, of Sundance. And it's the one that I went into the most skeptical and proven was proved right. Uh, Michelle Morgan's LA times. Now I did see most of this movie. Oh, that's right. Okay. So you can talk a little bit. Yeah. I had to leave early to go in and get in line for the ghost story, which I'm glad I did because, uh, this was the only press screening that started late. They have a very rigid press screening schedule yeah. at Sundance and they're always on time. Yeah. This was the one that started late and the one I needed to start on time. <laughs> and it did not, uh, which was too bad. Um, cause I was enjoying it slightly more than you, but I certainly see your strong objections to it because it is supremely annoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, a, a movie that is, the fact I, I, I would be, I think I would be less turned off by it. I'm not saying I would like it, but I would less by turn, turned off by it if it weren't for the name, because the name is right. very much saying, look at me, I'm going to be a Los Angeles movie, right. but it's such a superficial and awfully ju- often just wrong, uh, oh, yeah. Los Angeles movie that it, um, really, it really turned me off. These characters live in a, the, they live on the east side, but in the east side that has already been gentrified for them before they right. move to it. They live in a complete, complete uh, bubble um, in which everyone um, makes a, a, a above decent uh, amount of money. It seems, even though Michelle Morgan's character pointedly doesn't have a job the entire <laughs> time. Um, Although I guess, yeah, she also doesn't have her own place. So, all right. <laughs> but in fairness <laughs> well, to but, Michelle Morgan, I should have called that out. Yeah, but uh, her long-term boyfriend is a successful creator of a TV show. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So she's living off of him before yeah. they break up, which is kind of the inciting incident of the whole thing. Yeah, and her, her best friend is an uh, uh, interior decorator, I guess, um, is what she does. Um, sure. Uh, and yeah, then there's another character who's an actor and there's, and then there's, Oh God, there's the, I forgot about the prostitute character, (laughs) but I don't know. There's something kind of fascinating about the movie to me that, well, very clear to me, Michelle Morgan, who wrote direct and starred in it, wanted to play this type of character who is like kind of wit Stillman esque kind of creation of this very self-centered and very, uh, but narcissistic in a, in a way that's kind of blinding to any th- real problems she could be experiencing. She just creates problems for herself and is delighted that she's dealing with them, I guess. Um, is that a fair way to put it? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, um, I think there's another level of her wanting the people in her life to be happy on her terms. Yeah. Um, that, uh, um, I don't know. Who did you, did you compare it to, to someone? I mentioned Whit Stillman. Whit Stillman, yeah. Girls is also a fair comparison. There's some, I thought of, and I'm not sure if you were a fan of this show. I can't remember if not, but I thought of Blair Waldorf from Gossip Girl. I've never seen Gossip Girl. Um, yeah. Uh, watch the first season of Gossip Girl. Okay. Everyone should watch the first season of Gossip Girl. And then quit. Uh, and then you can, you can quit. I watched all five years, but uh, you can stop out of the first season. Um, I mean, there's also kind of just like a general socialite from the thirties kind of type from screwball comedies or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, my point is that I thought there was something kind of charming about the fact that she wanted to play this type of character and create this whole environment for herself to do so. And how much delight she was taking in being on screen, despite the fact that, the dialogue was like just not up to par with the kind of movies you wanted to make. And there's a sense in which the movie is trying to be something so much more than it is. 
and it's very narrow vision of Los Angeles and of even the culture it's depicting. It's a very narrow vision of that culture. Yeah. And I don't know, there's something kind of interesting about that that is still doesn't make for a very good movie. But when you're watching, you know, 17 movies in four days, you start to <laughs> latch on to weird, subversive, yeah. accidental things in movies that are still kind of charming. In I, ways. I like that. I feel like I probably started to get annoyed more easily. Well, fair enough. <laughs> uh, by them. But uh, it, yeah, uh, it's it's kind of I, I compared it on Twitter to like um, a modern day Los Angeles singles, but bad. Right. Um, I don't even like singles that much. Uh, I like, I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. I liked it when I was younger. Maybe, maybe it wouldn't hold up. Yeah. Um, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, maybe there is something especially annoying to me about the, the Los Angeles stuff because I've, uh, it, it feels like it's people who have lived in Los Angeles about three years and think they have it figured out. Whereas I've lived here, you have to live, maybe you have to get over a hump of living in Los Angeles long enough to realize you're never going to figure it out all the way. <laughs> you know, like I've been here 12 right. years and I'm like, uh, the thing I love increasingly about Los Angeles is that there's so much more to discover that I'll, yeah. I can live here my whole life and like, uh, not, not know it all because it's such a, a weird sprawling, varied place. Um, and so to try to fit it into little cliches, um, doesn't go well, especially when they're like cliches, like the idea that everyone is working on a screenplay, which is like, right. It was like 30 years ago that cliche was yeah. worn out. <laughs> um, uh, I don't like that. The one joke I did like, and I called this out in my review. I don't know if you even caught it, but every time they make reference to a restaurant, the yeah. name of the restaurant is something and something. Yeah, I did enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, that is how all restaurants are named here. I think uh, Spine and Marrow was the one that stood out to me the most. <laughs> yeah, I think there was also one that was like lettuce and tomato or yeah. something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it has some good jokes in there, but then it latches onto weird things. Like apparently, there's classes of people that just do nothing but host game nights. And maybe this is a real thing that she's latching on to, but uh, I, I have certainly have not experienced that myself. Uh, yeah, I can I, I can see that. But didn't the the I feel like ten years ago the OC already did like well uh, that might be I never watched the uh, OC. Oh, you got to get on the Josh Schwartz train, man! <laughs> You're missing all the Josh Schwartz shows. Um, the actors, um, the the best friend character. We didn't tell you the actors are uh, Jorma Taconi is the. That's a good guess for how to pronounce. Boyfriend, yeah, ex boyfriend. Uh, but the best friend is Dree Hemingway, yeah, uh, of whom I am a fan. Um, um, uh, uh, even though the last thing I saw in, uh, and I mentioned this at the uh, two weeks ago on our preview, uh, was at the at AFI Fest. It was called Live Cargo, and it was terrible. <laughs> oh. I hated it. Um, but, uh, she was in listen up Philip and, and, uh, she was in while we we're young, which I didn't see actually. I don't remember from listen up Philip or while we we're young actually, but, um, well, I don't know. I, I don't remember her specifically in listen up Philip right, either because there's like 80 yeah. women her age in that movie. That's kind of part <laughs> of the point, uh, part of the story of the movie. Um, but, uh, I, I really like her. Um, uh, and I hope to see her in more stuff. Okay. Uh, next up is landline. The other, uh, the second 90, 1990s set, uh, movie that I saw and the most overtly 1990s in a way that kind like of started to, uh, wear on me. Uh, I mean, as someone who was a teenager in the 1990s, I like a lot of the music in the movie because of it. You know, I like, uh, 
your, your, your PJ Harvey and your, uh, the breeders and Did stuff they like have that. Some somewhat deep cuts. Um, no, the, okay. Well, <laughs> I guess, I don't know. The breeders, they didn't use last splash from the bleeder bre- breeders. They used, uh, driving on nine, which, so I don't know if that's, uh, I, I think that's one of the great albums in the nineties. So I'm not sure how other people relate to those songs, but I think driving on nine is a great song, but yeah, with PJ Harvey, they used like the PJ Harvey hit from 95 okay. or whatever. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, you say deep cuts and I guess I'm thinking I'm coming at it from my point of view, right? Like, you know, these were exactly the songs I was listening to, but no, they're not, it's not like Ace of Bass or anything. Okay. It's, it's, it's what would, would it have, what would have at the time been called alternative rock. Okay. <laughs> That's what they use. Um, uh, and of course there's also reference, there's more than one reference to must see TV and there's, yeah, there, there's definitely a little, too much of the 90s stuff. Do people say it's the 90s a lot? <laughs> no, they don't do that. Well, they then it's not out. accurate at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because people were constantly, yeah, they were definitely pointing out that it was the 90s um, uh, all the time. Um, but uh, Landline is, oh, so it's from Gillian Robespierre, who directed Obvious Child, um, which was a very, uh, I would say, comparatively a much more focused dramedy. This one is, is uh, has more sprawl to it which is not a complaint i would say it's a more it's a more ambitious movie in many ways as well it's just not as successful but there's enough going on that i liked i would say i liked it more than disliked it um and so there's enough going on to keep me interested in what julian robespierre uh does does next um but the the story and as much as the story is important like there's not there's not a plot there's not like you know obvious child is as um glib as it is to refer to it as the abortion comedy it does it is able to boil down to like right. the fact that she's getting an abortion is the driving uh you, you know the 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 narrative driver of the movie um whereas landline has it's it's a it's a family so you've got john Turturro and needy falco as the parents and you've got jenny slate as the oldest the older daughter who is uh moved out and living with her um fiance played by the other duplass um <laughs> jay jay duplass uh and then you've got the younger sister um played by an actress i'd never seen before but who um is definitely one to watch uh i want to say her name is abby quinn is that right yep that's correct uh yeah she is terrific definitely keep an eye uh on her um and uh so basically i guess in as much as there's a story it's that um jenny slate starts a to have an affair start cheating on her fiance with uh, a college friend played by Finn Whitrock, who's usually better than this, but here he's, uh, yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. He's, he's kind of just a prop. Um, kind of felt that way about Jake Lacey in uh, obvious child too. You should yeah. like him a lot more. Yeah, maybe that's true. I like him in obvious child, but I see what you're saying. Um, and, uh, she then decides to take some time off from her fiance moves back home, uh, into the middle of some drama because she comes back home at the same time that her younger sister has discovered that their father, Jatafiro is also having an affair. Yeah. Um, and they struggle with whether or not to tell, to confront him or to tell their mother or whatever. And there's a bunch of other stuff going on too. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of little moments and it is overall a successful film, but I think the, it's not going to benefit from comparisons to its predecessor. Um, and also the 90s stuff is a little, a little heavy. All right. All right. Uh, what is next? Is it, is it your turn? Oh, it's, thank it God, is. it's your turn, your turn <laughs> to talk now. Uh, the next movie is Lemon, which is, pull my notes, 
the directorial debut, I think, of uh, Yanishka, I think is how you pronounce it, Bravo, who is, I think, a, from where I stand, a rather noteworthy short filmmaker. Okay. Uh, but she and her husband, Brett Gelman, co-wrote this film. He stars in it. Oh, I didn't uh, realize they were, um, they were married. Neither uh, did I until the Q&A came out. I'm a uh, big Brett Gelman fan. Well, you might like this movie more than I did. Uh, it has a very distinct sensibility that is kind of in that school of comedy that is more strange than funny. It's, you know, looking for characters to say the oddest thing or is have a, an odd line reading or an odd camera setup or just a, some sort of odd behavior at every moment that the only consistency is that unpredictability, which I, I mean, my central thing with the film is that I don't devalue it. I think it's perfectly valid way of operating. And a lot of people seem to like it at the premiere. Notably, the laughs seem to be coming from the rear section of the theater where the reserve seats were and not so much (laughs) towards the front where all of us audience members were. But, uh, I I assume that other people took to it. I I don't know for sure. I think kind of outstranged me. Um, but Breck Allen plays this guy who's kind of going through a midlife crisis. He's an actor who just is teaching theater classes in Los Angeles. Uh, his wife played by Judy Greer, who I was very excited to see because I love Judy Greer. Mm -hmm. Um, is, I'm I'm a big fan of her. Uh, is kind of in the process of leaving him. I think their relationship is actually the strongest part, and the further it gets away from that, the less all the behavior starts to make sense for me, I guess. There's a whole drama with his family. Um, There's, of course, drama in his drama class. Uh, I think, amusingly, he he does favor one student over the other, despite the fact that the student he favors is a much worse actor, which is slightly amusing. Uh, But... I don't know. For the most part, like I said, it's just kind of outstranged me and I, I don't really have a strong hold on it, but maybe other people would like it. The cast is certainly impressive besides Gelman and Judy Greer. You also have Michael Sarah, Neil Long, Fred Melamed, friend of the show, Fred Melamed, oh, yeah. uh, Gillian Jacobs, Rhea Perlman, Martin Starr, Megan Mullally, and Jeff Garland. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a really impressive cast. W- was Megan Mullally there? No, she was not. That's too bad because I, uh, Nick Offerman was there though. Yeah, I was, I, I, yeah. I, meant, I didn't, should have mentioned cause, um, I was going to call out which ones I was at the premiere of golden exits. I was at the, the world yeah. premiere, uh, and it was the place to be watch out, uh, to see cool celebs. <laughs> I saw Offerman. Yeah. I saw Dinklage. He was, uh, nice. waiting for the urinal behind me. Um, I saw, uh, Gail Garcia Bernal. All right. And then didn't even realize until the movie was over that one row behind me was Michael Showalter. Oh, crazy. Uh, and that's not even mentioning the cast of Golden Exits, right. who were great. So uh, that was a big, this is a big uh, celebrity sighting uh, <laughs> uh, thing uh, for me. Um, also, Pierce Brosnan was on my flight home. Whoa, that's <laughs> yeah, a big one. That's the biggest. Uh, I was imagining he was in first class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least you weren't flying Frontier again this year, so you actually had oh, the potential. God. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, never again. Uh, um, anyway, sorry. that's all I got to say about that. Okay, well, uh, speaking of kind of weird comedy, not that weird, um, but uh, offbeat comedy, a movie that I was not... I don't, I don't know if we even mentioned it last... Uh, I on think the we preview. did. We did mention it, because I had no plans to see this movie, um, but uh, I yeah, found out... Yeah, I definitely wanted to, and I'm mad I couldn't. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I found out after I had seen my first movie of the night that like some of my uh, friends were seeing another one, so I was like, I'll go to this. And so I saw uh, The Little Hours, directed by Jeff Baina, or Baina, I'm not sure how you say his name. Um, and I... Um, it is... Uh, 
a, a retelling of well, since it's based on the Decameron, there are a hundred stories in the Decameron. Right. I think um, uh, it's based specifically on the story that's also in Pasolini's The Decameron about the um, convent where a fugitive agrees to oh, right. hide out and be the uh, you know, farmhand or whatever around the convent, as long as he pretends to be uh, a deaf mute. Right. Um, so he can hide out from the people uh, out in the countryside who are trying to kill him. And then he ends up because the nuns think he's deaf and mute. He ends up becoming a, at first a repository for all their bullshit. And then someone they just <laughs> use for sex. <laughs> um, and uh, the thing that I think I really like about the movie that I think caused some people to devalue it is the fact that the character you, you're you've got a comedy who's who here you've got Al, uh Allison Brie and Molly Shannon and Kate McCucci um and Aubrey Plaza and you've got John C Riley and Nick Offerman and Lauren Weedman and Dave Franco and Adam Pally um you've just got this awesome uh comedy cast and the language of the movie is in modern day patois whatever you want to say <laughs> um vernacular in the I guess, parlance is, of our times uh, in the parlance of our times uh and i think that treated some people to to or, or led some people to treat it as uh the the complaint i saw in multiple reviews and tweets was uh feature length sketch hmm. comedy um because it does kind of have the feel of something that that um monty python would have done or something right. that, that, is, that could be a drunk history um uh, and then if you compare it to other features that have done similar things, you come, you, you, you don't come up with the best stuff. You come up with a year one and your highness. And those uh, are, neither one of those is a good movie. Last temptation um, of Christ. If you really want to go further <laughs> but out, I, but I mean, but this is the specific, comedy, yeah. specifically a comedy. Uh, but really what I think Jeff Bana is doing is he's taking a story that's nearly 700 years old. Right. Um, and that, because it's written in the language of 700 years ago, um, probably would feel pretty stuffy if you were to read it or, or have the dialogue read the way that the characters actually talked in the, in the story. But the Decameron was written in the, the, the Florentine vernacular of the time. Right. And so I think this is an attempt to take something very old and breathe the life into it that would have been there at the time and realize that this thing that's now considered part of antiquity and like, uh, you know, a revered piece of literature or whatever was actually a super body and risque comedy slash satire, like religious sexual satire. That's also kind of what Pasolini did with it. Yeah. For that matter. Yeah. But, which, I, but I'm saying even, I, I think even that to a modern audience, Pasolini would probably seem stuffy. Oh, I think now, but probably not in the seventies. I mean, that's like, it's a wild film, man. No, I, I, but, but that's what I'm saying is like every once in a while, maybe you have to like, uh, bring these things up to date. Yeah. For you know sure. what I'm saying? Um, and there is just, you know, it is funny to see like the, you know, the text on screen is very clear. This is 1347 right. or whatever year, 1378. I can't remember. I wrote it down. It's in, it's in the review, I think. Um, uh, and then to have, Aubrey Plaza and Kate McCucci just like sort of gossiping and bitching like <laughs> sorority girls. Uh, I really want to see this movie. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun and it does. I, I don't want to give too much away, but it does. Um, it commits, it goes pretty nutso in its, in its third act. There's uh, probably not as many shots of full on erections as there are in Pasolini, but no, uh, uh, can't no. have it all. Yeah, but it, it does go pretty nuts. Um, I didn't even mention Fred Armisen plays the, right. the, the Bishop. He has a great, there's a scene where he's, um, uh, confronting one of the nuns about all the, 
her transgressions and she's and he's like reading the list of sins and one of them he's like so he's like laying with a woman eating blood and then he stops and he just like looks at john c Ryan. he's like do you think i've ever said or written eating blood before <laughs> <laughs> uh it's pretty funny um uh, so yeah i'm glad i saw the little hours and i don't think based on the few reviews that i've seen i don't think it's getting as much respect as it deserves it did just get distribution though which i was very happy to see oh good oh good um all right i think you're up next i am uh next is manifesto which i was very excited to see it is a film starring almost exclusively kate blanchett essentially reciting all these artistic and political manifestos from throughout history they're not uh explicitly identified on screen which i would have preferred that they were um because they're hardly like natural anyway it's a very exceedingly arch setup um of her just in these different environments different kind of excuses for her to recite it one is like a news broadcast another is in a classroom um can i ask you yeah if you saw and i know we're both fans of los angeles plays itself yes which is a movie that constantly tells you what right. clips you're seeing did you see his more recent movie the thoughts that once no, we had it's good and it's interesting but it like to the point where it seems like what are you trying to show off like it doesn't <laughs> say and yeah. like sometimes it'll be like the you know the the what's the the laurel and hardy stairs the piano yeah. staircase what like okay i know what that is yeah but there's all kinds of stuff that i didn't recognize right uh, that it kind of it kind of frustrated me i wish that it would had uh, that would tell you what the clips were from yeah anyway. so in addition to that i also didn't really understand like the entire set about the film my assumption going is that Kate blanchett would be playing the people who wrote these things originally or something related to them but the fact that they don't seem to have a direct relationship to what she's saying made me wonder if i was just missing something or if they just didn't think it through and were just trying to think of ways to keep the audience interested by throwing in these different presentational ways. Like I said, one, she's a newscaster talking to herself as a weather reporter, just kind of going back and forth on this manifesto, but it didn't seem that setup didn't relate at all to what they're talking about. And then another where she's a school teacher, uh, relating this cinematic manifesto. I didn't know if he was trying to say that, like, this is so elementary, you can teach to children or if, I, I don't know. I didn't really see the connection at all. So as much fun as it is to see Kate Blanchett move between these different environments, I just, and as, you know, thrilling as it is to hear the words of these manifestos, which are often very electrifying and rousing in their own way, you know, the particular relationship that they're supposed to have to their presentational styles never really came across to me. Um, I will say that it's very well accomplished, you know, the production design and one, there's like this immense office, which they might've used CGI extensions in some regard, but mm. it, it just on production design level, it's all these like kind of stacked office floors that are slightly off from one another. So you'll have one floor and then the one above it will be slightly further back. So it's almost like stairs going up to these different mm. office environments. And it's very, like I said, eye catching, but I just didn't, whatever, mode they were trying to use to express a larger thing through it i don't know if it was there at all okay yeah all right uh on to my number two uh favorite film of the festival this uh, would probably be a number five or six wow um d reese's uh mudbound yeah uh, why don't, why, why don't you tell me why it's not higher? <laughs> no, I, I don't want to start off on a, a bad note with it. I think it's a really exceptional film in a lot of ways. Um, it's an adaptation of Hillary Jordan's, I want to say like 2008 novel. Um, it's a story of this family who goes to 
live on this farm and through various circumstances, they have to actually live like on the farm, not in a proper house. Uh, and in the process, they come into direct contact with the tenant farmers, this black family that work for them. But you know, this is, this takes us during world war two. This isn't slavery times or anything. They're yeah. an independent people and they have their they're, own lives. They're but tenants. Yeah. That's what I thought I said that. Sorry. Um, uh. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I don't know that it's even right to say that they work for them. They work a parcel of their land for themselves and then pay rent. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess. Like, I think the, the part that they're farming on their land, they're responsible for planting, harvesting, and reaping and selling and everything. And they just uh, pay in the form of rent to the white family. That Maybe. is That's my understanding of yeah. how that economy works. Well, this is problem. This is part of the my confusion is I wasn't sure the degree to which uh Jason Clark, who's the patriarch of the White family, was taking advantage of this family and the extent to which the things he was asking them were part of their daily routine because the way the black patriarch Hap kind of reacts to his envir- his these requests is that they're intrusive but they're not unexpected. Mm-hmm. You know, the first night they come in, he's like, Storm's coming, we gotta unload this cart, let's go. Yeah. And without a second thought, he hops in the truck. So I, I know there's an extent yeah, even to though which, he's he and his family haven't even finished dinner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know there's an extent to which the f- film is recognizing that uh, Jason Clark's character Henry is assuming a racist legacy uh, that goes all the way back to slavery in terms of the ownership he feels over Hap. But I I don't think their economies were so cleanly separated. I guess I, I feel like whatever okay. Hap and his family were harvesting were part of the general farm's harvest. Okay. I, I, I don't know. I, I felt differently, but I didn't know. Yeah. I, I don't know for sure either. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I, I liked this movie because it, it eventually does have more of a plot, but it takes its time getting there. In fact, the, um, the, 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 the minivan I uh, took back to the, the, the shuttle I took back to the airport right. from park city. Uh, there was one of the guy on my trip and I was, I was telling him, he was like, what'd you see? I was like, Oh, I love Mudbound," And he was like, Oh, I walked out half an hour in. Oh wow. Um, and I, because I think some people just want a story Yeah, and there's, and, and the, it's, it's not really until Jason Clark's younger brother played by Garrett Hedlund yeah. and, uh, Happen Florence's, uh, oldest son played by Jason Mitchell, both come home from world war two, uh, that the, the story, I guess really kicks in and that's almost halfway through the movie. Before yeah. I mean, it, it does begin in media res, as they say. And yeah. I think with the very kind of a scene where you can tell there, I mean, there's overt conflict, but you can tell there's a lot of underlying conflict as well. Um, yeah. I, I had kind of a tr- problem with it beginning that way. I felt like it was kind of a cheap device for as strong as it does. Otherwise I didn't feel there was a strong need to start there. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, I'm generally suspicious of, uh, the in media res, uh, beginnings, but I did, um, I guess I did like, um, that there are things you don't know that are going on obviously right. that's the point of that but there are, but but you um i guess when it when it comes back to the opening scene <laughs> i'm trying to way to dance around this but there are things you've learned just as that opening scene is happening you know what i mean yeah like uh about what's going on there and so it made it feel fresh again i guess yeah i just feel like it would have been somewhat stronger if we didn't know that scene was coming and it got to that scene it played out like we see in the beginning but with everything we already know has happened 
I feel like they at least should have gone back and played that scene out completely when they came back to it instead of skipping past all the business that, Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. It just felt when it gets, it's such a huge dramatic turn in the film that it, it really deserved more time. I think spent on it. Um, uh, uh, I'll agree with you. Um, okay. <laughs> but, uh, the other thing we haven't talked about that I, that I think is that I really liked, even though some of the films detractors say, uh, pointed this as a, as a problem, but the, um, the multiple voiceovers, I generally like that too, more so than most people. I think, yeah, uh, the, the, the number one sort of complaint I heard about people who had a problem with that is that it, uh, feels too much like it's just being adapted straight from a novel. Like right. it feels like a, a novelistic setup or method. Um, whereas what I liked about it is that it turns the different stories you've got, you've got six. Yeah. Basically you've, you've got Jason Clark, Carrie Mulligan as yeah. the patriot, as the uh, patriarch and matriarch of the white family. You've got Hap Morgan and Mary J. Blige, who's amazing. Yeah, by the she's way, great. she's uh, so great as, um, the, the mother and father of the black family. And then you've got Garrett Hedlund and you've got Jason Mitchell. So you've essentially yeah. got and basically what I, what I likened it to in my review is that he's, that um d Rees now has uh she has a um an orchestra of six different sections at that point yeah and she can play she can play the pieces on their own or together in different combinations um and so it turns the movie into kind of a narrative symphony yeah i could see that i mean in addition to the fact that the language itself is just a pleasure to listen to mm-hmm. um and i don't think it's too redundant the voiceover i think we generally learn new things from it and it adds to the scenes in a positive way. And, you know, I can see how it's maybe a little overused, but not too much by any stretch. Um, and then another complaint that I actually kind of do, uh, agree with is it turns anyone other than those six characters into a one dimensional character. Like Jonathan Banks character is just there to be a vile racist. Yes. Like, but, you don't learn much about him, but I think the way it develops that character is so effective because he starts out as kind of a joke and he's just kind of like a kooky old man racist that you've seen in a thousand movies and the movie lets you laugh at him and lets you laugh at his outdated, even for that time, yeah. uh, mindset and then slowly develops that into something much more that I think is right. very well structured. Also a reminder that it's, even today in 2017, it's not as outdated as we thought it was. Well, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Outdated in there's the, Nazis the out ideal. There. <laughs> there's Nazis out there and we can't seem to punch all of them fast enough. Um, but, uh, have you been watching those remixes as much as I have? By so, the way? so much. It's so, so satisfying. Much. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Cause they're all over Twitter, but then I also, um, you know, caught up when I got back from Sundance, caught up on like the metal blogs that I read. And I'm like, Oh, there's a whole other subset (laughs) like specifically to metal songs. Uh, it's, it's pretty great. Um, yeah, I could watch him getting punched, uh, all day long. All right. Uh, Europe, uh, I, you're, you're up, not Europe, you're up. I talked about my nun movie. Now it's time for your nun movie. Yeah. Like a lousy with nuns this year. Uh, this one is called Novitiate. I think I said it right this time. Uh, written, directed by Margaret Betts. I, I don't know if it's her debut film, but I think it is. Uh, but it has an excellent cast. Uh, Margaret Qualley from The Leftovers, uh, Diana Agron from Glee, and Julian Nicholson and Melissa Leo from A Thousand Other Things. Uh, in addition to a lot of other very talented... Diana Agron, my friend from having walked past right. her on the sidewalk once. 
David's best friend. Uh, and it's about Margaret Qualley plays this woman who enters the nunhood at the age of about 17. Um, after having not grown up in a Catholic family at all, but just really taking to it as sort of a, an escape. And it's about her navigating that whole culture from an outsider, but also because she's an outsider, I guess, feeling that calling all the stronger, you know, some of the women, the young women she's coming up with in her kind of class. I can't remember the term they use for the group of women that are coming up together in the nunhood, but is it novitiate? It is not. Okay. <laughs> that would be convenient. Uh, but you know, some of the other, one of the girls, her parents essentially forced her to be in there because they felt that, uh, every family should quote unquote, like sacrifice one girl to the nunhood and she's oh. the only girl in her family. So, you know, generally some of the girls are just there because they feel they had no choice. Um, but Margaret Qualley's character really strongly feels it. And the movie takes her very seriously. And I was really impressed with the degree to which the movie takes the Catholic faith, especially pre Vatican II Catholic faith seriously, because mm-hmm. this takes place kind of just, just before and just as Vatican II is getting implemented. And actually, its perception of Vatican II is very different than what I would have assumed from modern film. And it really hones in on the effect that Vatican II had on nuns' lives, which I had never really looked that much into and never really thought about. But it essentially, not only did they not have to wear like the classic nun uniform anymore, but it stripped them of any special status that they used to have in the church. Um, oh. And so the, after Vatican II, they were no longer considered kind of a privileged class of people within the Catholic Church. They were no different than a Sunday churchgoer. Um, and so that effect on the older women in the church, particularly Melissa Leo's character, is really profound and understandably so when you've devoted yourself completely to this one idea of who you are and this one identity, and suddenly that's stripped away. Um, Melissa Leo, as people who have been watching films lately might know has a tendency to maybe overact a little. And, uh, as the head nun of a very strict order of nuns, she certainly goes all the way with it. Uh, but generally this is a very involving kind of melodramatic look at, uh, like I said, a strict nun order. It was very thrilling. It kind of starts and ends awkwardly with some voiceover in the beginning and then a character decision at the end that I don't feel is totally earned, but it's, like I said, very earnest in how it approaches the struggles of coming up in the nunhood where in addition to the strictness of the Catholic church, you have the strictness of the way women are supposed to relate to other people. And it gets to a point where Margaret Qualley realizes she hasn't actually touched anybody in months, if not years. Mm. Um, and she starts to really hunger for that sense of intimacy, but because she is a woman in the Catholic church and coming up in the nunhood, there's no, way for her to get that, you know, even a hug between women in this order is considered out of line. Um, so it's, it's very, very powerful, exceedingly well acted. Um, and yeah, I think in spite of the, it's kind of awkward starting and I think a rather noteworthy film. Uh, I'll say this. I am generally more often than not, I'm a fan of Melissa Leo's overacting. Okay. <laughs> but there are definitely exceptions. Uh, I'm definitely not a fan of the fighter. Um, oh, you're up again. I am with, uh, this is probably my third or fourth favorite film of the festival. Uh, it was, uh, Gustin Guy Defa's Gustin, Dustin Guy Defa's person to person. Uh, this is his second feature. He's also made a ton of shorts. I haven't seen his first feature, which I think is called bad fever. Uh, but which I'm looking forward to catching now. This involves, as far as I can map it out, I think five distinct stories, 
three of which overlap with each other, two of which overlap with each other, and one of which doesn't overlap with any of the others. Um, so it, it, like Golden X, it takes place in New York, has various strands of stories, but doesn't make any attempt to resolve all of them together, but is just a delight start to finish. Um, in one of them, Michael Sarah plays the newspaper reporter who's training a new reporter played by Abby Jacobson in the midst of this murder mystery they're trying to investigate. And Abby Jacobson hilariously doesn't seem to recognize that the reporter job comes with asking people a lot of questions and she spends most of their section just nervous and awkwardly trying to navigate the uh, newspaper life and realizing that's not at all for her. And Michael Sarah essentially just trying to mentor her as a way to sleep with her, constantly pushing her into these environments in which she's completely uncomfortable. And Abby Jacobson plays that discomfort rather well. Uh, the murder mystery is his wife is suspected of murdering her husband. The wife is played by uh, Michaela Watkins, who's oh. quite good and who isn't given like her own story within the film, but she intersects with these various people in very uh, amusing ways. And Michaela Watkins is good at kind of playing the edge of drama and comedy. And then they all come into contact with this uh, watch shop owner played by Philip Baker Hall, who's best friends with Isaiah Wicklock Jr., which just to see the two of them interact is worth the price of admission alone. And then in a completely separate set of stories, uh, this guy named Benny Cooper Smith, who's not a professional actor as far as I know, but who is a very strong screen presence, is trying to track down uh, a rare Charlie Parker record. And this guy is defrauding him and he has to chase him all over town. And they're kind of chases uh very amusingly handled that they gone exceedingly long uh bike chase scene bicycling around brooklyn uh which just takes forever because none of them are particularly good cyclists they're just casual <laughs> cyclists but they just keep riding because they have no other way of uh hunting each other down um and then his roommate uh played by george sample the third uh is trying to dodge his ex-girlfriend's brother after his that brother finds out that George Sample posted nudes of his girlfriend online and th- this uh, like I said this I thought of Golden X it's at least in retrospect as I was thinking about person to person because it has that kind of New York interlocking stories mm-hmm. kind of set up and it's also shot in 16 millimeter and it has a similar relationship that I think Alex Rothbury has a technology where person to person tries to avoid it as much as possible, but it doesn't go as far as Alex Ross Perry in terms of like setting in a completely different time period. But the internet is especially essentially like a suspicious force that no one can quite understand in this film. Uh, and you know, got Dustin guy. Defa is very keyed into these very kind of tactile environments of record shops and bookshops and watch shops is kind of run down places that barely seem to exist and very suspicious of new technology without kind of trying to remove himself entirely from the world in which he lives. So I, I thought he handled that better than Mr. Alex Ross Perry. Um, and then in an entirely different section, uh, Tavi Govinson, I think you say her name, yeah. um, who I mainly know as an actress, but apparently like a huge fashion designer. Um, she plays this kind of teenager who's dealing with her. I think she rose to, notoriety as a fashion blog, like a teenage fashion right. blogger. Yeah. Which I don't know her that way at all. But when I saw, she was in enough said, when I saw it with a friend of yeah. mine, she was like, that's Tommy Govinson. I love her. <laughs> and I was like, if you say so. Um, but she plays this teenager who's kind of questioning her sexuality and dealing with a lot of that. And like I said, these stories aren't directly related, but they share a kind of, a, a spiritual kinship and a sense of humor and a sense of liveliness about them. And it's a very, I, I think, uh, Nick Pinkerton described it as a very full film. It's 84 minutes, but it's very mm. full of life and gives a very sense 
uh, perspective of Brooklyn that I don't think I'd quite seen before. You know, some people coming out of it complained it was too quirky. I didn't find that to be true at all. I just thought it was very, very lively and very witty and very charming and uh, very pretty. All right. Um, on to my third and final 90s set film, All right. uh, from directors Maya Forbes and Wallace Wolodarski, The Polka King, uh, which is uh, a fictionalized retelling of a documentary from a few years ago called The Man Who Would Be Polka King, which I didn't see, um, in which Jack Black stars as uh, real-life Pennsylvania polka star slash convicted villain Ponzi scheme uh, g- uh, guy Ponzi scheme guy that's what you call it um, uh, um, Jan Levan uh, is his name um, and uh, I, it's it's an exceedingly slight film that I can't really it, it seems like it's the kind of thing that like in a year and a half or so when it's available on the plane <laughs> like go ahead watch the Polka King it's um, it does not set its sights very high. Um, it is first and foremost concerned with being a Jack Black vehicle comedy. Hmm. Um, uh, and th- to the point where as Jan Levan like hurts, like he like he bankrupts people. He's like a, right. you know, he's like a low rent Bernie Madoff <laughs> in this nineties, like Pennsylvania, Catholic, Polish pol- polka community. Um, <laughs> But the movie doesn't it seems to go out of its way to not deal with his own consequences because it doesn't want you to stop laughing at Jack Black's funny accent. So it's I did mean, you see Nacho Libre? No, I never did. Okay, because I love Nacho Libre, and this sounds kind of like that. Okay. Um, uh, the 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 rest of the cast is also you know we've got a uh, Jason Schwartzman again uh, showing up as. Um, Jan's uh, best friend and clarinetist in his band, um, Jenny Slate again shows up as as his wife. Uh, Jackie Weaver plays her mother, um, uh, and uh, it's it, yeah, it, it's not it was it's not a boring ninety minutes at any point, but it's like there are better things you could probably be doing with your time. <laughs> it's it, it's it's very light. Um, Jack Black gets it gets to do some some funny stuff. Um, as does Jason, Jason Schwartzman. Um, and then moving on to, uh, the first film that I saw, uh, opening night, a movie that I was super excited about, um, and didn't manage to disappoint me, but didn't quite live up to what I was hoping it would be, yeah. uh, directed by Kirsten Tan. It's a film called Popeye P O P space A Y E, <laughs> which is even more confusing because the elephant in the movie that's named Popeye, the captions refer to him as, right. Yeah. I saw that. As, as yeah. like the sailor. <laughs> yeah. Popeye the sailor man, like spell that. So I'm not even sure why this, why this spelling, if it's a copyright thing, maybe, maybe, um, they have to spell it that way. Um, uh, uh, you know, getting sued by the estate of the, whoever created Popeye, <laughs> um, or by the estate of the lunatic who started Popeye's chicken. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard about that guy. No, uh, he was nuts okay. uh, in a, in a great way. Um, anyway, but this is the story of a man who uh, is uh, nearing retirement age. He grew up poor in a in a in a small uh, northern Thailand town, but town, but uh, moved to Bangkok, Bangkok, and became a um, moderately successful, like essentially like an upper middle class guy now, uh, architect. And now he's facing this time in his life where 
the first build, major building he ever uh, designed is being has been bought and is being uh, demolished, and his wife uh, has lost any um, romantic or sexual uh, attraction to him, and he's just sort of generally feeling inadequate. Uh, and then one day on the streets, when he's left left the office at, at, at lunch and just decided to walk around. Uh, he meets this elephant that he immediately re- recognizes as the pet elephant he had when he was a kid <laughs> uh, in the countryside. How um, does he recognize this elephant? Uh, it, it's not... Um, does it have any distinguishing marks? No, there's no... like That's not... Um, there, there's no distinguishing marks, but then he whistles the theme to Papa the Sailor Man ah. and the elephant like blows in response. Right. And it's like, apparently this is something they did is when, when he was a kid. Um, so, uh, he decides, uh, he, at first he tries to bring the elephant back home to live in his yard and his wife is having none of that. Uh, so he decides to take the elephant across Thailand back to the town where he grew up so that it can live on his, uh, uncle's on his uncle's land, which is where the elephant lived. Um, when when they were kids so it's a bit it's essentially it's a it's a boy and his dog road trip movie except it's a middle-aged man and his and his elephant road trip movie but it's a just you know super episodic right um journey that is um it is it, it, it it's it's good it's well done um there are interesting characters throughout great performances throughout the elephant itself is adorable um but i did feel kind of let down that it was so by the numbers like the 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 catharsis and the and the revelations that are reached at the end um are exactly the ones that you could right. have guessed that it was going toward uh and it just it, yeah it seemed like it uh i don't know it, it, it laid some unexpected elements um and unexpected elephants um onto <laughs> no, thank you a who recognizable blueprint um, which is not necessarily a bad way to make a movie. Plenty of good movies. Right. Some of my favorite movies uh, have done that, um, but there just wasn't enough to make this stand out. Still, I would recommend it if you like elephants, because uh, <laughs> how often do you get to say that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, this elephant is adorable. And here's the story I'll tell: the guy next to me, in some ways, talked throughout the movie, which is generally a bad thing but the only thing he ever talked about was how cute the elephant was and so Fair i was enough. kind of okay with it every time the elephant would do something cute he'd go oh or he'd go that's so cute oh man um but real quick yeah uh, um then there's one part where the elephant gets away from the the guy and the local police in this small town are gonna, gonna are gonna shoot the elephant they think it's a threat they're gonna shoot it so like aiming the rifle and the guy next to me he goes fucking assholes <laughs> <laughs> he was really into it. He got the message of that movie. You yeah. know, I, I forgot to mention with the golden exits. I was sitting next to a guy who took audience distraction techniques to a whole new level. He was like interacting with the movie. <laughs> Anytime something happened that he liked in the movie, which could be the title font or uh-huh. a famous person showing up, you just kind of bob his head like, all right, this is happening. <laughs> and then anytime a character did like a notable gesture, he would imitate that gesture as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I eventually moved seats once enough people walked out. Uh, oh, that's funny. People. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see any walkouts at the premiere, but the, well, it the, is the premiere, the two women behind me did not like yeah. golden exits. Uh, a premiere and a P and I screener. Very different environments um, for the walkout. Oh, okay. This is, um, but here's what I did do at the at the hero. I didn't mention the hero before. I mentioned Cameron Esposito was very funny. Yeah. In the movie, 
Okay, I see a lot, or I used to. I haven't done that much anymore, but I used to go to a lot of stand-up comedy shows. And so when Cameron Esposito like finished her set and brought up the next person, I almost started <laughs> clapping just as a muscle memory. Yeah, just as a reflex, totally. I started like yeah, uh, uh, clapping. All right, so um, yeah, that's that's Popeye. Uh, I think so. They never learned about feminism. That was the thing that you had, like <laughs> latched onto in the preview episode. Uh, yeah, because it, it was in the initial. Right. Um, uh, uh, IMDb description and no I wouldn't say they learn about uh, okay. feminism but they do I will say this um, it seems like a family friendly story like a larger than life or yeah, whatever totally. um, it's definitely an R-rated movie alright um, yeah <laughs> good to know uh, yeah but there is uh, I will say oh, I, I pointed this out in my review and I uh, something one thing I actually did really like about it is that it jumps um, back and forth in time like the um, there's the the storyline of the journey and there's also the days leading up to him finding the elephant and leaving on the journey. Okay. And it tells those two stories sort of more or less concurrently. Although it focuses more on the journey in the second half, but, um, but there's a really cool moment where his, um, his wife is, um, sort of leaving the house in a cab after she's like decided she's had enough of him and his elephant and is crying. And there's a song playing on the cab radio. And then it cuts to a scene that's technically happening like two or three days later where he's drunk at this small town karaoke bar singing the same song Mm. in karaoke. It's a nice moment. (laughs) You're up. Uh, (laughs) next up is, also my third or fourth, depending on where I'd put person to person or where I put this, depending on how you look at that, uh, favorite film, which you're supposed to be the documentary guy, but I saw two documentaries and I you saw, saw a whole lot of nothing. I saw none. Uh, and this is one of those documentaries. It's called Tokyo idols and it is completely crazy. Uh, I, I went to Tokyo in October and I did not catch on to the Tokyo idol culture. Um, there are parent. it's these mostly groups, but sometimes they're individuals, these female pop singers who aren't, you know, quite musical artists yet. They don't have record contracts or anything, but they perform almost nightly and they do a live stream twice a day to these groups of very small, but very dedicated and mostly uh, middle-aged male fans. Uh And they're apparently the movie says 10,000 different young women who identify as these idols ranging in age from 10 to about 20. And they have these extremely devoted male fan bases and it is just as creepy as it sounds. And it is the director Kyoko Miyake just takes it all as red. She just falls around one of these idols and the most prominent male fan that she has and just tries to figure out what's going on with all of it. And it's completely fascinating to start to top uh the shows themselves you know they're often for a handful of people but all the people in the crowd know all the moves they know all the words the songs themselves are sometimes geared towards these fans and trying to build them up and tell them that they're awesome for following them around oh wow uh and there's definitely you know there's not not a sexual component to it but the film kind of sums it up i think well in terms of the handshake, which is the only acceptable form of touching between the fans and the performers, which the handshake, I guess, especially in Japanese culture has more of a sexual history than does a friendly history. It's modern context is a friendly gesture is like I said, much more recent. It's like from the fifties onward. Um, so by allowing that handshake, they can acknowledge some sort of contact, but still maintain a, a sense of distance and quote unquote honor while giving the men a taste of what 
they're there for, which isn't entirely what they're there for. What that's, what's interesting. I think most about the film is that the fans that these girls accumulate are mostly guys who, you know, have stunt, stuck to the straight and narrow. They have office jobs for one reason or another relationships haven't worked out for them. You know, some of them came close to being married at one point, but didn't quite work out. And these pop shows are like their one final chance at like self-expression and freedom. And so they are genuinely into the music and into the lifestyle, but it's also pretty creepy. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I, I think a very non-judgmental, but very clear eyed look at, both sides of the lifestyle, both the extremely hard work that the women put into this. Like I said, they perform almost nightly, which are, they're very high energy shows and very fast paced music. And so it's a lot of work that they put into it, but the end result is very often not, you know, that they're going to be signed to a label or anything. One group has 300 members. They hold annual elections for the top 80 who will be featured stars for the following year. And these elections are held in these giant stadiums where like hundreds, maybe thousands of people attend to watch. It's this whole wow. insane culture that I had no idea existed at all. Um, but yeah, I, I really hope this gets distribution because it's one of the more fascinating kind of straightforward documentaries that I've seen in quite some time. I can't wait to, to see it. Yeah. Um, and I'm that documentary guy. I just don't hate them <laughs> like you do, but apparently you don't. Uh, all right. My final one. Um, uh, this was one of my most anticipated and I would say it's probably my number four all right. um, uh, of, of the fest is called Walking Out. It is the third film uh, from uh, the brothers Alex and Andrew Smith, who made their debut at Sundance back in 2002, I think, with uh, The Slaughter Rule, which is an early, uh, pre-super-famous Ryan Gosling um, movie uh, that also has uh, David Morse and Cleo Duvall and a very tiny role from a then-unknown... Amy Adams. Um, uh, and it is a terrific movie. I would say one of the best movies of the aughts. Probably. I can't remember if I put it on my top 10 list when we did that episode. I have to go back to that. Um, uh, and then they made a second movie, um, called winter in the blood, which is not as good, but is weirder. Um, and now this movie, the third movie walking out is, uh, more competently made, not as weird, and not as deep as the slaughter rule, but still a, a really terrific movie. Um, I, I I almost made reference to the, Re- the Revenant earlier. Um, my uh, my my Twitter review of Walking Out is it's like if the Revenant were good. Right. Um, uh, the story is that uh, Matt Bomer plays a um, sort of uh, taciturn, emotionally closed off, um, divorced father who lives uh, in. Uh, rural Montana. Um, I guess all of my, most of Montana is pretty rural, <laughs> I guess, but there is, uh, you know, there's, there's Butte and there's Livingston, uh, which is where certain women was set. And this is my two years in a row seeing Montana set <laughs> movies at Sundance. Um, uh, and once a year, his, his son now 14 year old son, uh, put by Josh Wiggins, uh, come who lives now in Texas with his mother comes to spend a, a weekend, a long weekend with him and go hunting. That's what they do. They go hunting. Yeah. Um, Matt Bomer is very much a hunter. Um, and Josh Wiggins sort of does it because it's what his dad did. You can tell he's not really into it, but, um, Matt Bomer's got a big hunt plan this, this time he's been tracking this moose. He wants his son to bag his first, uh, big game. Um, and so they go deep and high into the snowy wooded mountains, uh, to find this moose. Um, things don't go as expected about halfway through the movie. 
Um, there's a pretty drastic incident that leaves both of them um, injured. And then that's what the title comes in. They have to walk out uh, uh, back down to um, low enough to where they can get to where they parked their car. So it's, um, yeah, it's a father son bonding movie that turns into a survival movie. Uh, but it's, it's, it's very, it's very well done. <clears throat> um, it, it takes a couple of, uh, unexpected turns and the ones that are expected. I think it, it does, uh, very well. Um, but mostly, um, it's what I'm fascinated about. I, I, now that there are three of them, I would like to, I would love to see, uh, like a triple feature or something where people can look at Alex and Andrew Smith because they are, Montana filmmakers. All of their hmm. films are set in Montana and are shot in Montana. And they clearly have something to say about the people in that state. Most specifically the men in that state, all of their, all of their lead characters are men who are, um, in most ways, very typically masculine, right. but also in some ways feel, uh, apart from the group. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's could you know, Ryan Gosling's character is a football player, but he's also, uh, in, in slaughter rules, he's also the son of a drunk who committed suicide. Um, the lead in winter in the blood is, uh, uh, a native American farmer, but is, who is also a drunk. Um, <laughs> and, uh, this one is the most, keeps the most under attack, but you know, you have to, you're led to wonder like why Matt Bomer, who seems like a very capable guy. Um, and is obviously, he looks like Matt Bomer. He's a very handsome right. guy. Like, why is he such a loner? Why is he divorced? Like there's, uh, you know, there's some questions going on under there. So, um, yeah, uh, Alexander Smith cl- clearly have thoughts on the men of Montana <laughs> and all of their films. This one, probably the most so are beautiful. Um, the director or the director of photography, photography's name, uh, I think is Josh McCullen. Um, and the, there's just, uh, I mean, not that he didn't have a lot to work with, but you know, he, there's just like beautiful snowy vistas, uh, throughout this movie. It's an absolutely gorgeous, uh, it's an absolutely gorgeous, uh, advertisement for Montana, except for in the second half when there's, uh, you know, a lot of blood, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, but maybe for some kind of people that would work uh, as well. Um, uh, I, I will say this is, um, I mean, I said all their films focus on men, but this one has almost no female speaking parts at all. Hmm. And for the first time in their movies has almost no native American speaking parts at all, which is a big part of their first two movies hmm. in Slaughter and slaughter rule. Ryan Gosling's best friend, um, is native American and multiple scenes take place on the reservation. Uh, winter in the blood is very much you know, about like the lead character is native American. Uh, here you've got one woman and one native American and they're both the same. Uh, luckily they're played by Lily Gladstone nice. uh, from from certain women, um, but it's a very brief uh, uh, brief, brief turn, uh, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, overall, it's a really solid movie. I still don't know if anyone's picked it up, um, which is uh, a, a shame. Uh, I hope people get to see it. It feels like the kind of marketplace angle of Sundance was much calmer this year. Yeah, with the exception of the Big Sick, which I think sold yeah. for twelve million, there hasn't been a lot of big splashes. Yeah, or it doesn't feel as kind of feverish as uh, last year. Maybe it's because everyone's still, you know, or Fox Searchlight is still nursing yeah. their wounds from Breath of the Nation. <laughs> everyone else is uh, trying not to make the same mistake. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, my last two. First one is the second documentary I saw, World Without End, uh, parentheses, No Reported Incidents, which is the latest film from Jim Cohen, uh, who got on my radar through his narrative feature, Museum Hours, but he's mainly a documentarian. He makes these kind of impressionistic, slice-of-life uh, documentaries about various locations. Uh, counting his last film was kind of set all over where he's traveling is parts in Moscow, parts in Brooklyn, parts I can't even remember where it's all over the place. But this one is just focused on this tiny uh, English town called Southend on Sea. Um, and it's a, a very, I, I think, a very good, I think it's better than counting because it's so focused. He just goes around from place to place talking to a couple of people, but mostly just kind of capturing the environments, people going about their business and the way the town looks at night and it's very beautifully shot. And, you know, if you go for that kind of thing, which I often do, uh, I, I think you'll quite like it as I did. Yeah. Uh, Grasshopper films has it for distribution. So hopefully it'll receive, it's only an hour long, so I can't imagine it'll get any kind of major art house release, but it'll probably, you know, show up online at some point. And so, like I said, if you're into that kind of slice of life stuff as I am, uh, I definitely recommend it. Kind of like uh, Frederick Wiseman. That's the comparison I keep looking for. Um, and then the last film I have is The Yellow Birds, uh, directed by Alexander Moores, co-written by David Lowry. Um, he had quite a presence at the festival this year. Yeah. Uh, and this is more of the David Lowry I didn't like. Um, it, it's good in its own way. It's uh, an Iraq war movie about these two young soldiers played by Ty Sheridan and Alden Ehrenreich, who are kind of mentoring one another along in their first year or so of deployment, just kind of trying to figure out the ropes, trying to figure out their personal limits. Uh, they both have very different reasons for being in the army and, but they form a, a pretty tight bond. And I think it's very strong at the start when it's them trying to figure all this out. And they're such exceptionally good actors. I think Ty Sheridan, especially I've been so surprised that he's maintained as good as he was at like 11 or whatever in the tree of life, that he's still such a strong yeah. actor, um, which you don't often see that kind of consistency. But Alden Ehrenreich is as solid as he's been in the last few movies. Um, but then it starts to intrude on this whole plot where Ty Sheridan's gone missing and the film moves in and out of different time periods between Alden Ehrenreich being back home and then showing pieces of their deployment um, that is supposed to keep it like a mystery of how he went missing. And the eventual reveal of it, I guess, is interesting enough to justify that decision, that kind of cheap narrative device, but it's only like just barely interesting enough. And it starts to kind of devolve in kind of a sub apocalypse. Now look at, uh, their sergeant is this kind of Bible quoting, you know, maniac soldier, which is not my favorite device in a war movie. Uh, so once it, the further it gets into that, the, the rougher it is, uh, Jennifer Aniston and Tony Collette are also, in there as the moms back home, which I think Jennifer Aniston plays a good beat of she and her husband kind of encouraged Ty Sheridan to go into the military. But once he's there, you know, it's kind of scary that he could mm -hmm. go missing. And then once he does, she is very good at playing the uncertainty of that. Um, but like I said, just it, it never quite focuses enough on the human experience of going to war, or sending your kid to war and keeps intruding on this, I think somewhat ridiculous plot that never quite justifies itself. So it was a little uneven, but the acting's really strong. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a decent enough movie, I guess. 
All right. Um, I want to wrap up by uh, mentioning, you were better at mentioning it going along, but um, what movies do have distribution. Yeah. Um, so a ghost story is at a 24. Yeah. I think you, you mentioned um, uh, Amazon has landline. Um, uh, this one I didn't even realize until I looked it up just now, but Popeye has been picked up by Kino yep. Lorber. I didn't realize that. Uh, Netflix has Berlin syndrome streaming. They also have, I don't feel at home, but they already did before. It oh, premiered. Okay. Um, uh, which is sort of similar to Call Me By Your Name, which Sony Picture Classics yeah. uh, bought before it had screened, uh, I think, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, and then The Orchard has Hero, and then the theatrical for Berlin Syndrome is someone called Vertical. I don't know Vertical as a distributor. But, I don't think um, I do either. Yeah. Uh, but that's so, so rights are split between Netflix and Vertical yeah, and Berlin that, Syndrome. They do that a lot. Um, I think those are the main ones that we are aware of, uh, right? But then you mentioned uh, a couple World, of them. Yeah, World Without End yeah. and France. Oh, right. Who has France? Uh, Music Box. Music, that's, right, that's right. And Colossal has distribution, I think, through Draft House. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um... So yeah, uh, this is a, a fun Sundance. You're looking forward to next year? Yes, very much so. Like I said, I was a little uncertain going into this, but I, I feel like there was even so many more movies that I missed out on that sounded super exciting. So yeah, I, I think the festival's vibrance is very apparent to me. I, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff coming through there. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great time. Um, I very much like being there the first five days. Yeah, um, that's when all the excitement is. But also, I wonder if like if you went like the last five days after the, you gotten the buzz on everything and they'd added more P and I screen right. and stuff like maybe you could leave having seen more of the probably uh, uh, of the stuff you wanted to. And, and also there's less attendance the last five days, but um, there is something to that atmosphere of, of that, you know, the first weekend and uh, everyone being there and, uh, and my favorite place, which is the, the lobby and bar at the double tree, which is, I where, like squatters grill myself. Is it the grill? <laughs> I can't remember. I think it's squatters roadhouse. Okay. I think it's what even it's better. Yeah. Which you were at three times. I was at just, Oh once. yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's good. But, um, I just, I mean, cause there's the, um, you know, the, as you know, I'm telling, I'm telling the listeners at this point, uh, the press and industry screenings all happen in one yeah. little area. That's sort of its own mini festival. Yeah. In a way. And so, um, the double tree bar right there, um, becomes, uh, a place where people like us tend to be a lot. Uh, and there's, you know, uh, reliable wifi and you can sit there and have a, uh, low alcohol content beer. <laughs> thanks. Thanks Utah. Um, uh, and, and get your writing done and feel like you're, uh, you know, uh, a part of a phalanx of uh, <laughs> brave uh, movie bloggers, so uh, brave, we are weathering the storm literally. Yeah, uh, to be out there on the front lines, uh, reporting back to people that they should check out Berlin Syndrome and avoid L.A. Times. <laughs> Uh, all right. Any, any last thoughts? No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, thanks for, uh, doing this. Hopefully we'll, sure thing. you'll be back on the show before next year. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, you can find us, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I've been talking way too much. This is what I need Tyler for. <laughs> um, or that's why we need a third person for these. Um, yeah, and you're feeling sick. This is a I disaster know. here. Um, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. Uh, you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com. Uh, Tyler at battleshipretention.com. For Tyler, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Follow Tyler at Tyler Pretension. He's got another podcast called More Than One Lesson. I technically have one called Hey, Watch This <laughs> when I get back into TV in a year. Um, 
uh and that's that scott where where can people find you well i forgot to mention that i'm covering the festival technically for criterion cast which is where all my reviews are going uh, i have reviews up of tokyo tokyo idols uh mudbound and golden exit so far more to come as of I, today i've got all 14 of my i know you actually write during the festival which i don't know how you well you see a couple fewer movies than i yeah, do that's that's how yeah i i'm like i'll see the movies i'll write later and uh i'm kind of glad i do because i'm so exhausted during the festival i can't imagine how you turn out anything coherent um <laughs> but uh yeah so my reviews will be going up in the next week or so I'll probably get them all done and then on twitter at rail of tomorrow and at the american cinematex blog uh movies on the big screen all right um thanks for listening we'll get you next time bye this program is a proud member of the battleship pretension fleet 